find me sadistic. I bet I could fry an egg on your head right now if I wanted to. No, kiddo. I'd like to believe you're aware enough, even now, to know that there's nothing sadistic in my actions. Or maybe towards those other Jokers. But not you. No, kiddo. At this moment, this is me and my most masochistic. Bill, it's your baby. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's, it's definitely worth revisiting. 15 minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing, or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode in our Tarantino Triple X 30 Years of Alt Tour Cinema Retro Series right here on the Film Effect Podcast, a weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it that full film effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is Kill Bill Volume 1. Not too long ago, I was quite the professional. My friends and I, we were the creme de la creme in an exclusive industry. And we all worked for this man, Bill. Then one day, I decided to leave, settle down, and start a new life. But when I tried to get out, they did me in. Don't you ever wake up. I guess they should have tried a little harder. So I suppose it's a little late for an apology, huh? You suppose correctly. Now it's kill or be killed. You have every right to want to get even. Get even? Even, Stephen? I would have to kill you. That'd be about square. And I choose kill. Cool. One tick to Tokyo, please. One way. That woman deserves her revenge. And we deserve to die. No kidding, I heard it was kind of hard. Silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. Yeah. Any more subordinates for me to kill? Hi. Hmm. Go home to your mother. 
didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? For a second there? Yeah, I kind of did. Silly rabbit. Our part's over. After awakening from a four-year coma, a former assassin wreaks vengeance on the team of assassins who betrayed her. Alright, so I'm just going to get this out of the way now. I fucking loved this. This was so much better than I remembered it being. Why it took me so long to watch it again is beyond me, but I'm so happy that I finally did and we watched it because... I don't know, I'm happy that we can just get down and just talk about this film because like I said before I hadn't seen this movie since it first came out on DVD like what's it been <laughs> 18 19 years or something like that it's been a while I, I've just I think I I've borrowed it twice from you over the last 10 years and I just never yeah. I gave, gave it back to you and never watched them for some reason like you I had, had the itch to watch it and never get, never went through with it there's a quick funny story to that so you had them for so long. Not that that's a problem. That's usually how it goes. But you had them for so long. I actually rebought them on Blu-ray and didn't realize I had lent you my DVDs. And that was the precipice for me getting my movie app to remember who I lent stuff to. Because I was like, that sucks. I don't want to rebuy something again when I don't need to. It wasn't your fault. I just completely forgot about it. <laughs> and you had it for a while. You're like, here. And I was like, oh, I thought I owned those at some point. Now I know where they went. <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. Um. So yeah, and, and and funny enough, like I said, never watched them, uh, but I did finally watch it, and uh, yeah, this was I I enjoyed this film so much. Um, I, I forgot about a lot of the stuff that Tarantino like incorporated into this movie. Like this this movie is just like a smorgasbord of different genres and just you know just homages and everything and like it's like our greatest hits of of like 70s you know martial arts cinema you know a little bit of black exploitation mixed in like it's so much in one and i think a lot of people overlook that you know yeah they, they yeah this, this film as like tarantino's you know kung fu movie or whatever and like yeah it's that but it's also a lot of things like i said he incorporates so much into this and like again just like volume two i mean just like volume one with volume two i haven't watched that movie since that came out on dvd so naturally you know later on this week i'm going to sit down and watch that and i remember not liking it at all but We'll see now that I've, you know, gotten a little older and wiser. And, well, you know, we'll see how I feel about it. But, um, yeah, you were yeah. going to say? I was just going to say, like, I remember when this movie came out and I loved it. Like, I thought it was awesome. But I do remember, like, the critical reception was kind of mixed. Like, it was definitely Tarantino's, like, worst mm -hmm. received film up until that point. You know, because obviously Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown we're all pretty much universally praised by all the critics. And I remember yeah. audiences liked the movie and reading stuff, but the critics I remember were split. Like it wasn't a home run like Tarantino had kind of had before, but I think looking back on it, I, to me, I've always liked it and I, I think it, it still holds up. I still really enjoy it. 
Full disclosure, I really liked this movie when I first saw it too. The reason why I've waited so long to rewatch it has nothing to do with the film itself. It was kind of like one of those things where I kind of wanted to wait and watch them both together. But part two, at the time, was such a bad taste in my mouth. Because I enjoyed one so much. And then two, you know, came out and I we saw that. And, like, I just had very different feelings after, you know, seeing. You know, especially how it ended and everything. I just... I don't know. Like I said, I'm curious to see how I think or what I think about it later on this week when I sit down and give it a rewatch. But uh, I enjoyed this movie very much when I first saw it. Loved it watching it again. Like I said, this movie just blew me away. And uh, yeah, I mean, I remember this movie going back to the trailer. The first trailer for it was attached to Gangs of New York. I remember that. And that was in the holidays of 2002. Yeah, we saw Gangs of New York. Yeah, you were with me for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember seeing the trailer attached to that for the first time because the whole thing was like, in 2003, Uma Thurman is going to kill Bill. And I don't think that it was announced that it was going to be two parts yet. I really don't. um, Because it was just a market, uh, a trailer for Kill Bill, not volume one. And I think it was like, I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, I think we'll save the whole splitting story for volume two. Because um, I really didn't look into that too much. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to add before we get into it? Nah. Nah, I just wanted to add that. That was the thing that popped into my head. Just the reception. I remember that. But now nah, let's get rolling. All right. Cool. First time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to, you definitely were not with me when I first saw this. I actually saw this about two weeks after it came out. At the time, I was living in Virginia Beach. Yeah, uh, with my ex, and I saw it with her and her cousin Amanda um, at one of the theaters down there on one of the bases, uh, or the main base that we were staying on down um, in the Norfolk area. Because, like, I say Virginia Beach, but technically we were, like, right there on that line. Because uh, Norfolk is right next to Virginia Beach, and Norfolk, Virginia, of course, is a very big Navy town. So, um, long story short, my ex, her cousin, who I mentioned, saw the film with us. Her husband was in the Navy, and he was stationed down there. We went down there a couple times after uh, Hurricane... Was that that Irene? Yeah, I believe that was Irene uh, in 2003. It came up the East Coast, and we went down there to help. We actually stayed down there through the hurricane, and it was a nightmare, but that's another story for another time. And we ended up talking about staying down there and moving in because she had an extra, or they had an extra room rather, in their apartment. And about a month later, we just spontaneously packed up and went down there. So anyway, um, this was one of the f- handful of films that we saw down there on the base at the theater. Um, how about you? I'm curious as to when your first time was. Yeah, I was there opening night. 
uh, well, maybe opening weekend. I don't remember that well, but it, it was opening weekend. And I'm fairly sure I saw this with uh, Metz, Andrew Metzger. It could have been somebody else. It was definitely somebody from the neighborhood because I remember uh, I met up with him after work that There's night. Not too many uh, names you can choose from. It's either him, Dacry. It could have been Dacry. It, 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 it could have been a couple people uh, from the neighborhood. But I just remember like – Doo-doo Brown. Yeah, I just remember talking. Tom and, uh, Tommy likes the Beatles. <laughs> Yeah, there's not a ton Sorry. of names. It was, it was only two of us. I remember that. It wasn't like a big group, um, whoever I went with. And I remember it was opening weekend because I was so pumped. And I remember just, you know, dumb younger us come out, just like punching each other because we were just so pumped up after the final act of the movie. I just remember it was a packed house. Like, it was just awesome. Like, it, it was just a really fun experience uh, seeing it. it it's one even though I don't remember the exact details, uh, I definitely remember the atmosphere and just having fun. Like some people yelling at the screen, which normally I'm not a huge fan of, but in this type of movie, yeah, it's like a exploitation revenge type movie. I can forgive that. You know, everybody's there to have fun. But sometimes yeah, it was good it's time. appropriate. Audience yeah. participation. Sometimes it's appropriate. Like, yeah, the, sometimes. the two last Avengers movies. I had fun watching it, watching it with the theater and the interactions. Um, but, yeah, dude, I envy, I envy you because I saw this, like I said, a couple weeks after it already came out, and it was a random, like, Tuesday, Thursday night, and it was the three of us and, like, maybe four or five other people in the theater spread out, so, yeah, definitely didn't have an audience like that, so, uh, like I said, still big fan of it, though. Um, Alright, well, story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. So let's talk about the film's origins. Uh... Uh, I do remember this being first teased during Pulp Fiction. If you remember correctly, Uma Thurman's character was uh, sitting there. Uh, Mia Wallace was at the table with uh, uh, John Travolta. Uh, why is his name slipping me right now? Anyway, that's not what's important. She was describing a television pilot she was going to be in called Fox Force 5. And it's essentially <laughs> the deadly international Viper assassin squad from this film. If you follow the description that she gives to him, she says the five girls in Fox Force 5 match up perfectly, you know, uh, based on her description with the five women she talks about. Uh, you have Daryl Hannah in this movie. She matches up to the blonde. Lucy Liu, Japanese. Uh, Julie Dreyfus, French. African-American. Vivica A. Fox. And then Uma Thurman herself. Knives. And... Uh, so yeah, and that's actually funny enough. On the set, in between takes, Tarantino and her kind of came together and kind of consulted with one another on this script, and they wrote. That's why the 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 writing credit on this film is uh, is you uh, and Q, Uma and Quentin. Uh, Tarantino wanted to do a uh, always wanted to do a revenge film. 
involving the deadly assassin in the world, and he was telling her about it during the film, and in between takes, the two of them would talk about these characters, and then he went on to do Jackie Brown, and she did whatever she was doing during that time for those seven years or so. <laughs> Batman and, and Robin. Yeah, and then she saw him one day around the year 2000, and they went back to the idea, and that would become his next film after Jackie Brown. So, um, this, uh, was around also the same time he was talking about wanting to do a spaghetti western, and there's kind of some spaghetti western, uh, hints of, of, of that in this movie sprinkled throughout, uh, definitely more so, I do remember one thing about volume two is the, the feeling of that being more of like a western, so, yeah, um, uh, that would eventually go on to become Django and Hateful Eight um, would be those films. But uh, yeah, so this movie just, when I first heard about it, I was like, dude, Quentin's doing what? Okay, sign me up. I, I was already on board. Uh, by that time, I had seen Reservoir Dogs. I had seen Pulp Fiction. I had seen Jackie Brown numerous times. For the longest time, that was my favorite film of his. And definitely during that time, that was my favorite. So, I was really anticipating what was next. And then when I heard about it, you know, I've said on the show numerous times before, love me some revenge films. So, I was all in. You chastised me for putting this on my list when we did the revenge films. Do you feel a little different after rewatching it? I do. I do. I, I, I feel a lot of remorse and some regret. And I, I owe an apology. So this is me going on record saying I was wrong. I am sorry. This is definitely a revenge film. Um, Somewhere or whatever episode that was from, I'm eating my fucking words. Can't wait to go back and hear that I shit. I think it was The laugh. Crow. Yeah, I think it was The Crow that we did that. But crow. I could be wrong about that. It was The Crow. No, you're 100% right. It was The Crow. So my number one... I'm a little surprised you didn't mention this movie at all uh, for your list, but uh, Kill Bill, kind of cheating because it's two movies, but Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. Eh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I looked at the titles and I was just like, eh, I like Kill Bill and all, but I don't know. I never. Come really, on, they fucked her up so bad. I've never, she, gets, she gets raped by Buck who wants to fuck. I mean, <sighs> come on. She had it pretty bad. She comes back. I know, <laughs> so, I, I know, know. I but I'm always, I don't know, I was just, I was thinking about different Vengeance films, I guess, for this category, and overlooked the- Oh, the whole movie is built on her getting, killing fucking Bill, it's in the title. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, You're right. I, I think it's a different kind of Vengeance movie, but I mean, the whole movie's predicated on her getting revenge on all the people, so I don't know, I thought it qualified. I would like well. to add a fifth honorable um, mention. Kill Bill Volume One. <laughs> I just want to mention too, real quick before we move on, is like yeah, it was yeah. such a long gap between Jackie Brown and this movie. I mean, it was like what was it six, seven years in between uh, Jackie Brown and this film? Uh, it, was it was six years. Yeah, six. it was just a ninety-seven, two thousand three. Yeah, six. It was just a long gap because Tarantino, you know, it's not like he's putting out a movie constantly, but he's pretty consistent. Two to three years, you get a Tarantino uh, film. Pretty much since 
reservoir dogs like it was like two or three years two or three years and then this was the long gap just kind of you know i heard interviews before where he said he was just like writing like he was just having a good time writing this um what would turn into inglorious bastards obviously he acted in uh from dust till dawn like he was just doing other stuff having fun but i i just remember being so pumped because it had been so long as obviously as well i had seen all his films up until that point including true romance and i was just ready for the next one and i was just excited that it was so different than his previous films i remember leading up to it all right well shit let's do live top five rob it's your turn okay i'm feeling kind of basic today top five side ones track ones Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. All right, this week we're going to do top five favorite martial arts films because... I've kind of been a, I've always been a martial arts fan, uh, but I've always been looking for uh, just, I guess, a reason to talk about it, and this seemed to be a really good reason to bring up the conversation of martial arts films, so what better way than to do a top five on it, so I will kick off with Ronnie Yu's The Bride with White Hair. If you've never seen it, and shout out to you, Justin, I know you're a fan. If you've never seen The Bride with White Hair, highly, highly, highly implore you to do so. Um, For better or worse, it's the reason that he got the job with uh, such films as Bride of Chucky and Freddy vs. Jason, more so Freddy vs. Jason, um, which whenever we inevitably do that episode, I have a lot to say. Um... Always have, always will. But, um, yeah, The Bride with White Hair is just a wild movie. The less I say, the better for you. Check it out. Um, I think it's about to come up on its 30th anniversary, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, that's, you know, neither here nor there. How about you? What's your number five? Oh, shit. Uh, hang on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should. I always forget this. I have honorable mentions. Of course I have honorable <laughs> mentions. Uh, I have four I wrote down, and I'll just... Just go right through them. Steamroll right through these things. Uh, Return of the Street Fighter, IP Man, the first one. Uh, the Raid Redemption, and Enter the Dragon. So, all right, how about you? If you have any honorable mentions or or end, which are number five? Yeah, my honorable mention. Well, first, I want to give a disclaimer. Martial arts isn't really my thing. I haven't seen a ton of like the kung fu martial arts movies. Not that I dislike them. I mean, I've seen some. I've seen a lot of the more popular ones. But if you said Corey, like, what's your wheelhouse? It's like horror, American action, um, you know, like Oscar drama. That that type of stuff is the stuff I seek out. So this one, obviously, I've seen stuff, but it's not my thing. Like, if anybody starts talking about kung fu or anything like that i'm kind of lost so i just want to say that like if there's a cool movie that's not on my list that's it's just probably because i haven't seen it like it's just not totally fair i and i wasn't even sure i was kind of curious as to where you were at on martial arts anyway so now that you got that out of the way totally understandable so do you even have five films that you like oh yeah i mean i got five movies but i'm just saying i wasn't a knock i was just i didn't know so yeah like it's just 
I haven't seen like the IP man movie. Like there's just quite a few that I haven't seen that I know are good. Like I've seen some of Jackie gotcha. Chan stuff, but not a lot of it. So there's one that I leave off. That's probably why uh, my honorable mention uh, was actually one of yours is enter the dragon. It, it, you know, it's just an iconic important film, but it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't, I didn't want to put it on my list because I remember liking it, uh-huh. but I, it was like a rental at blockbuster. Like I haven't seen it in so long. I, I didn't want to put it on my list for that reason, just cause it's not like fresh in my head, I guess, or somewhat memorable for yeah, me anymore. Uh, so my number five is actually just a fun movie. Kung Fu hustle. It's just funny. It has like great fighting in it. I just remember it was one of those, anytime it was on a movie channel, I knew it would be on, I would just let it ride just because I like the fun type movies where it's not necessarily anything you have to pay, super pay attention to. It's just you're along for the ride and all the people involved are having fun and you just see some cool fighting and choreography. So that's why I always love Kung Fu Hustle. Right. My number four is Sister Street Fighter. Um, now... I own the Sister Street Fighter collection that Arrow Entertainment put out um, whenever they did. Uh, and I also own the Street Fighter collection that Shout Factory put out like five or six years ago. So, big fan of those movies. Uh, but I didn't I didn't like just make them the majority of this list, so don't worry about that. Uh, I just tried to choose one film from each uh, series. And so, yeah, Sister Street Fighter... Badass movie, uh, not nearly as good as uh, The Street Fighter, which is this what this film is a spinoff of, obviously, from the title. Um, but yeah, badass film, uh, and uh, check it out. Check out, check them all out. Uh, what about you? What's your number four? Uh, my number four is Big Trouble, Little China. Um, I've just always been a huge John Carpenter fan, and this is one I can kind of squeeze into this category. I just always love this movie. Just Kurt Russell playing like the supposed to be American hero. And he's just incompetent and just completely gets thrown to the side every time. And then, you know, Wang has to like basically be the hero of the movie. I'm just a huge fan. Uh, and I just wanted to throw it in there. It has some good fight scenes in it. Indeed. Great film. Actually me and Madeline covered that a couple years ago when mad dad, uh, okay, my number three, Game of Death, the final film from Bruce Lee, which is, ironically enough, the film that Uma Thurman wears, uh, the, I mean, sorry, the uniform that Uma Thurman, Uma Thurman wears in this movie, that green and red biker outfit, it's, uh, it's inspired from this, it's, it's basically the same thing that Bruce Lee wears in this film, and it's his final movie, and it's my favorite of his filmography ironically enough so uh how about you my number three is legend of the drunken master uh to me this is jackie chan's finest i wanted to have at least one jackie chan movie on here uh this was always the best i mean i had seen a couple just because jackie chan was blowing up so much in the u.s in the 90s that's kind of when he was becoming popular they're releasing some of his movies uh, with English dubs over here then. I remember seeing him on pay-per-view all the time. But to me, Legend of the Drug Master just has it all for Jackie Chan. Like, it has his, you know, comedy that he works in. I've always just liked that. Like, he obviously kicks ass in his movies, and he just has effortless choreography going on. 
but he also makes it funny and he's vulnerable. So that's what I've always liked about Jackie Chan. And uh, I think Legend of the Drunken Master is his finest work. So I'm going to put that on number three. You know, uh, real quick, uh, before I get to my number two, I really respect the hell out of the fact that you're such a big Jackie Chan fan. Uh, he just never did it for me. I was just never a big fan of his. Uh, I remember he when he broke in in the mid '90s with uh, "Escape from the Bronx." Is that what it's called? Rumble in the Bronx. Rumble in the Bronx. Sorry, and then uh, Mr. Nice Guy. That was the next film. I knew I'd get it out. Um, uh, and then Rush Hour, and I'll be honest, I didn't see those movies. I, just, I didn't see those movies I just mentioned, but Rush Hour I saw. You and I saw it in the theater actually together, and it just didn't do anything for me. Now, granted, I'm a big Rush Hour two fan. I'll go on record and say Rush Hour two is funny as shit. Uh, I don't know if it holds up. I haven't seen the film in like ten years or so, but I remember when that first came out. I think like it was one of those the first films that I rented early pre-street because I first started working there when I came out on uh, DVD and I me and Venker fucking watched that shit together and we were just laughing hysterically that movie was just fucking hilarious um, again at the time haven't seen it in a while so I can't really speak on it you know with with this current mentality of mine current taste that I have uh, but yeah, just to wrap this whole thing up with Jackie Chan that you started, um, I, 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 I've seen the police story films, they're good, and granted, what he does, his talent, I just, I just, you know, I, I can't, that's, I, I can't forget about that, I had to acknowledge that, you know, I respect the hell out of him for that, that stuff is awesome, you know. But, you know, as far as holding the film, like, I just don't think, you, know, you mentioned he makes you laugh and all, like, I don't know, I just, different strokes, I guess, you know, so. Have you seen, uh, I was going to just ask you, though, have you seen a more recent movie he was in, The Foreigner? He was actually really good, like, dramatically, like, his acting, he was really good. Is that good the one that. with Pierce, Pierce Brosnan? Yeah, and I, I don't want to build it up, or like, it's not a great movie. Daughter but gets far- blown up or something. Yeah, it's not a great movie by any stretch, but Jackie Chan was pretty strong in that one. Like a more recent performance, I'd seen him in. I like that. Yeah, I've seen him like pop up over the last like five years or so, doing like more dramatic roles and stuff. I guess he wants to be taken more seriously now that he's you know gotten older and can't really do the shit that he could do before anymore. Um, which you know I, I can respect. It's kind of like that old you know respect the hustle kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, again, one one more time, uh, just respect that you love him so much. And I kind of wish that I had that, the same, you know, appreciation for, uh, him, I guess. Anyway, getting all out of the way, my number three is, or number two rather is, okay, so we're bringing up all these like movies with Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan you know, Ronnie U Productions and stuff, but I'm going to bring Jet Li to the party. My number two is Kiss of the Drag. Uh, fucking, the one with Bridget Lee he did about 20 years ago or so. Um, I don't know what it is about that movie, but I have, honest to God, seen that 
about 15 times at least in my lifetime. And I went back and watched it probably about seven, eight months ago. I rented it uh, on Vudu and it still holds up. There's something about that movie I have always fucking just really, really liked. And uh, I think that was like, if it wasn't the last film that Bridget Fonda did, it was one of the last, one of the very last ones, at least. Um, and, you know, it's a shame. I miss Bridget Fonda. Uh, and, yeah, so have you ever seen Kiss of the Dragon? I guess I should ask that. I did. I did a long time ago. I'm not a... I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I'm not a big Jet Li fan. Never been okay. a Jet Li fan. Never did much yeah. for me. Just like me with uh, Jackie Chan. So yeah, Kiss the Dragon for me, um, and that's one of his uh, American mainstream films. Um, but but still, it's it's a really fun movie. Um, so how about you? You know what? Number two. This isn't on my list, but uh, you know what movie I did like with him in it was which which was the one with Bob Hoskins was like his master or whatever like that. Und- which movie was un- that? Un- 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 oh, shit, is it un- Unleashed? No. Maybe or something like that. Unleashed, yes, Unleashed, yes. <laughs> I that movie was not a good movie. I just remember Bob Hoskins yelling at Jet Li, and I liked it. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, because he didn't talk <laughs> or some shit like that. Nah, he was like supposed to be like a dog or something. Like he had him on a leash and he would like yell at him. And I just love Bob Hoskins. So and every I time he took the collar thing. off, like Jet Li would go after like whoever he would sick him. I got. I remember yeah. that movie. There's a reason I didn't think <laughs> that movie was good. Just the premise alone sounds no. like dog shit. No, but it's just I don't know. That one's always stuck in my head. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. My number two is the film we're about to talk about, Kill Bill. Uh, it's just. I've always loved it so much just because it combines so many genres, but, uh, you know, mainly like the samurai martial arts genre and one one of my favorite directors, Quentin Tarantino. So, you know, how could I not put it on the list? Uh, we'll get into more, obviously, as it goes on, why I like it. All right. I like it. My number one is the Street Fighter. Three words. Sonny fucking chiba <laughs> i thought at first i was like you like street fighter the movie really that was your number oh, one the, hence <laughs> the i had to emphasize the 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 street fighter the fucking sunny chiba from like 50 years ago movie's fucking badass <laughs> I love that movie. I've said I've probably watched that movie at least three or four times in the last two years since the pandemic. It's just something about that movie is just awesome. Uh, how about yeah. you? What is your number one? So my number one might surprise some people. It's uh, Mortal Kombat. No, I'm yeah? just fucking with you. It ain't I was Mortal gonna Kombat. say, yeah, I'm just Mortal fucking. With you. <laughs> That's martial arts, okay? It kind of, I guess. Uh. But my serious number one is uh, Raid Redemption. That's one of those, I just heard a lot of buzz around it, 
And then when it came out, I actually went and saw it in theaters. I just went like on a matinee one day oh, nice. and I was just blown away by it. Like I, there was just so much crazy shit they did in that movie. Like at the end when he's fighting the light yeah. tube goes in the guy's throat, it's just crazy shit. And I was glued to the screen the whole time. And that was honestly like the best choreography, the best fighting I've ever seen. It, you know, it, and it was nonstop. Like it just kept going. Uh, and I just loved it. So like, if you asked me to just pick one martial arts film to watch, that would be it for me. Raid Redemption. Yeah, I saw that when it first came out on Blu-ray. Um, that's a fun movie because I remember it came out around the same time. Now, granted, this came out first that we're talking about, Raid Redemption, but a little movie called Dread was released like not long afterwards, and they both had the yeah. same premise, which plays like a video game. It's like they got to go. It's kind of funny. I remember that because I saw up both. To the top. The boss is at the top of the of the tower, and you know you got to make your way up each floor. And each floor has got like a different gang or whatever. And like, just on paper, it just sounds like a premise for a video game. But like, you're actually watching, you know, a ninety minute film uh, about whatever you just said. So, Dread is a movie I would like us to cover at some point because I fucking love that movie. It got it, it like nobody saw it. Nobody really talked no, about it a whole lot. And that's a but shame. That's, I think that's, Carl Urban's given up on that one by now, too, because he was like oh, trying to fucking get people behind that as well for the longest time. It's never going to happen. No. But it, the, the boats, the, I mean, the ship sailed on that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I remember seeing it um, maybe second weekend it was released. It was like we on saw it together because it was an un- we saw it in 3D because I remember being blown away by the 3D in that movie. I think to this day that and hell, I'm gonna even throw this name in the hat. Uh, my bloody Valentine. Those two movies stuck out to me as like my two favorite experiences <laughs> in the 3D format. Um, not a lot of good experiences <laughs> with 3D, but those two stand out. Um, yeah, but saw yeah. both of those. Yeah, I remember. We did, we did. And I remember we saw the like there was no one else in the theater when we saw it. But that you know, that's another reason why. That's what happens when no one goes and sees it. I think the film pulled in like twelve million dollars overall, which is like a travesty. Um, the three D effects were so fucking gorgeous, especially that slow mo shot when they were on the the hallucinogen drug. And then, like, oh, the yeah. scene when he comes in and fires off at them and shit, and they're all, like, tripping, and, like, it's just in slow-mo and spark. It just looked great. So much about that movie I really liked. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, should we talk about Kill Bill? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, might as well. So right off the bat, we get that old school Shaw Vision, you know, feature presentation. So uh, the uh, Shaw Vision, uh, that's a, a tribute to the old Shaw Vision 70s uh, cinema and studio. Uh, more on that later on in the uh, trivia tidbits. So moving on, we are treated to a quote kick off the movie this is one of those films that have the uh 
infamous quotation to start the film. And this is a, this is a, one that says, Revenge is a dish best served cold. Old Klingon proverb. While the uh, exact origin of this quote is unclear, it serves to suggest that the act of revenge is the most gratifying when it is un- unanticipated or unsuspected. And the more ruthless the manner in which it is taken, the better. Um, so let's talk about this theme of revenge and how it plays into, you know, the overall theme of this movie. Uh, I guess this is kind of like a, uh, follow-up conversation to the topic of this when we had our Crow episode a couple months back or whenever that was. Um, you know, like I said in that episode, I've, this is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite subgenre of movies ever. I am a sucker for a good vengeance movie. Um, and this is kind of the part episodes back, you know, we had this conversation where we started debating about Kill Bill, ironically enough, being a revenge movie. Alright, so kicking off in black and white. You got the bride at her most vulnerable, beaten and weak. And then we got Bill. We hear Bill taunting her. So it's important to say or note that we hear Bill. We do not see Bill. Uh... He cleans her up with his handkerchief, like all the blood and shit. She's got a bruised, beaten, bloodied fucking face. Like, you know, we just, it's just a close up on her face in black and white. We don't really know what's happened. I mean, we can imagine what's happened. She's in her bridal gown. So clearly she was, you know, at the altar. And then Bill shows up with, you know, the gang. And uh, they crash shit. And they, they, they take wedding crashing to a whole new demeanor. And uh, so this is, like I said, how we kick it off. Just a close-up on her face, and he wipes her off, and we hear him. We do not see him. We, in fact, we don't see Bill in this movie at all. I was going to say nope. that in the trivia tidbits, but nah, fuck it. We don't see his ass till volume two. And I was surprised, because I didn't know realize that until after it ended. I was like, huh, didn't see yeah. Carradine. I forgot about that, too, because obviously you see the rest of the gang because you see that scene where, you know, they're looking down at her. You see that several times with all the other members, but not Bill. He ain't in that yeah. shot. Nope. And it's funny, too, because we don't really see Bud either. Uh, Michael Madsen. Well, he's in there. He's standing there when they show the group. That's it. Just not- That's it. And then you hear him at the very end, like some dialogue. But other than that, like, he's absent until you know volume two i remember him having a big role in volume two so i'm curious to see how that plays out uh i vaguely remember some things here and there um but anyway we'll begin back to this story here so um she's pregnant she tells him the baby's his and as soon as she does that bang and it cuts uh you know, it's it's like her pregnancy cost her her job. Uh, kind of like in real life, too. It's kind of like how art imitates life because, you know, the story goes, she got pregnant with Maya Hawk. I, I think it was Maya uh, who she was pregnant with uh, at, around this time. Um, anyway, she was pregnant and nearly lost the role, but Quentin was just 
hesitant on making sure she was the bride. You know, yeah. They they started this from the beginning together, and they were going to go through with it together. So he held off on production. So we talked earlier about you know this movie, you know, it coming out, you know, for X amount of time, the biggest gap, and well, it's kind of Uber Thurman's fault. So uh, blame her on that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so. I guess the studio wanted to push through and get another actress, but Quentin's like, nah, that's not going on. That's not happening. We're going to wait. Yeah. So good on him. And it makes sense. Like I said, they have so and, much history yeah, behind doing this. To be fair to him, I can't imagine someone else in this role. I mean, I'm sure somebody else could have did it fine. And in a parallel universe, Kill Bill would have still been good with another actress. But Honestly, like Uma Thurman's so synonymous with this role, and I think she's so pitch perfect throughout the movie. I really have a hard time imagining another actress doing what she did in this movie and pulling it off as well. Uma is so good in this movie. Like, she does a lot, and she goes through a lot. And yeah, she does have a stunt double that I'm going to be talking about later on, who's kind of famous. And, uh, but a lot of this stuff was her as well. And, and, you know, she did a lot of hard work and training in preparation for this role. And, uh, it shows it, it, and also you got to remember, like we just mentioned the whole pregnancy thing, you know, she had to assume it's Maya and that's pretty much after that, it was get to the gym, get training, Get, get working out just it's time to get back into you know kill bill shape because you are the fucking bride so anyway um opening credits we hear set the bang bang my baby shot me down it's uh nancy sinatra's melancholic cover of Cher's 1966 hit song and then we're told this is chapter one with uh two in parentheses uh, the bride arrives at the front door of Vivica A. Fox's of Renita Green's house, a.k.a. Copperhead, by the way, because all these characters have code names. We'll go that later. And the two immediately start beating the holy hell out of one another. <laughs> just, yeah, it's just a good way to kick it off. Just first like, in the living room and then into the kitchen, just beating each other's asses like the two are just beating and battered then all of a sudden the little girl comes in and like the two of them are sitting there like pretending the fucking family dog Barney destroyed that living room and they're there cleaning it's like <laughs> it looks like Barney did a lot more than just destroy the living room it looks like Barney did a number on your fucking face cause both of them have like slashes and blood running down their faces and it's just, all- sweating profusely yeah, they're all bloody, they're sweaty, they're out of breath. Like, it's just so funny. And, you know, I think this part goes a good way in setting up the bride character. Because, yeah, she's out for revenge. Yeah, she wasn't a good person. But she's not a complete, uh, completely irredeemable. Like, she's not going to kill a mother in front of her daughter. Like, that's why she stops and goes along with it for the sake of the girl. And you learn, like, obviously she does have a conscience, even though she's going to be murdering people and and uh, she know, used to murder people for hire, you know? <laughs> exactly. You know, most of the time, a lot of the time, not all the time, unfortunately, but most of the time, children are off limits, you know? 
unless you're Vladimir Putin or, or whomever, you know, uh, but children are off limits. And, and it's like you said, it's good, nice to see that the bride here has a conscience and is like, ah, nope, 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 nope. I'll play along with her mother's stupid game. Say it was the fucking dog. Like, okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even sure the little girl is buying that bullshit, but that's whatever. Uh, and then each time the bride's name is mentioned here, they go into the kitchen to, to, to calm down and make some coffee. And like I was getting ready to say, every time the bride's name is said out loud, there's an audible sound that blocks the name from being heard. Even though we see her name later on written on a plane ticket. Yeah. Her name is Beatrix Kiddo. So, uh, Vivica A. Fox... Vivica A. Fox. What'd you think of her in this movie? No, yeah, she did a great job. Yeah, I mean, I I liked her um, cadence, like you know, calling her bitch. Like I just like the back and forth between who, um, her and uh, Uma Thurman. Like I, yeah, she's on point here. I mean, the whole fight scene looks good. You know, I'm sure there was double work involved, but it looked like Uma and Vivica were doing a lot of the work there. And yeah, yeah it just looks great. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on, too, uh, the, the fight choreography, because a uh, very big name uh, was responsible for that. Someone who we've talked about on the, in the show before. Um, yeah, Vivica. I've been a Vivica A. Fox fan since Independence Day. That was the first time I've seen her uh, on screen before. And uh, uh, from there, I remember her... Uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm the world's biggest Vivica A. Fox fan, but she's definitely someone who I thought was, you know, was good. Set It Off was a great movie. That was probably the second movie I saw her in after, you know, of course, Independence Day. Uh, Set It Off, though. Oh, fucking her, Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett, uh, Kimberly Ellis. It's, you ever seen, have you ever seen Set It Off? No, I, I mean... Technically, I think I have, but honestly, it's been so long, I couldn't uh, really tell you anything yeah. about it. I think I saw it when it came out, and that was it's it. Like F. Gary Gray film where they like Rob Banks and stuff, and like John C. McGinley's detective characters after them, and there's a big... Did it come out know, in the late 90s? Did it come out in the late 90s? It came out in late 96, so about 25 years ago. Yeah, I remember when it came out. I, I watched it then, but honestly, I don't remember much of anything about that movie. I like set it off. It, it still holds up, too. I've seen it twice. I saw it when it first came out on video, and then I rewatched it about two years ago. I uh, streamed it wherever, and uh, it's good. It's got a really powerful ending. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that that's another, another film that begins in. Um, <laughs> fucking booty call. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you at on Booty Call? <laughs> I remember seeing it on like um, pay per view, seeing the previews for. It. I don't think I've ever watched that movie though. Oh, I've I remember seen, seeing the Call. trailer for it. Me, Venker, and Venker's brother Carl saw Booty Call. Um, fucking one of them two rented it, and we watched it over their place. And I was just like, "Yeah, this movie." I mean, there's some stupid shit. There's some shit that that doesn't fucking hold up all these years later, but uh, that, that stuff that's still like embedded in my brain. 
like the dumbest quotes from that movie. I'm not even gonna fucking try and sit here and say them out loud because, like I said, some of this shit does not hold up. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Idle hands. God, I mentioned idle hands. Fucking love idle hands. Going to be talking about idle hands sometime soon. Possibly a Halloween horathon candidate. Not sure. Question mark. Uh, but boat trip. Remember boat trip. Cuba? Yeah, that movie. I didn't, I I remember seeing it. Oh, uh, like back when it came out, it was fine. Rewatching now, that is just like a horribly offensive movie. Like I I, I think I watched it again, like <laughs> several years ago. Oh my I gosh, that is it. such. I dude, don't seen go it back since, and watch oh, it. I have. Yeah, I haven't seen it since it first came out on DVD. Um, I don't Honestly, really have any intentions of going back because I kind of cringed a lot of the time. Back in 2003, watching this, yeah. So it goes from I mean, cringe to unwatchable. Like honestly, that movie should be stricken from the record. It, it's not good. It's like, hey kids, remember Horatio Sands? Or, yeah. or better yet, remember Rosalind Sanchez? Remember, huh? Remember when everybody was homophobic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But no, guys, we got Roger Moore in our movie, and he's gay in real life. So if he approves, then of course it's got to be, you know, safe. It's, it's 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 clean. It's classy. It's like, no, whatever, fuck off. You just, your plot alone is just a, a big old red flag. So uh, anyway, all right, so let's move on. Um, we could sit here and talk about Vivica A. Fox for hours, but let's just continue on with the movie so the two they uh, agree to continue the fight another time even though Vernita tries expressing regret and says that she's a changed person and they decide oh, excuse me and they decide to carry out the fight that night at 2.30 in the morning random ass fucking time dressed in black so she says that she needs to fix her kid's cereal and attempts to shoot her through the fucking kaboom cereal box haha uh-huh, get it and uh, when when uh, the bride kicks her coffee at her like a fucking ninja and then lunges her fucking hunting knife that she had attached to her into her chest and kills her on the spot. And then she turns around and what you know, little Nikki's there. I'm not talking about the movie either. I'm talking about her daughter, Nikki, standing there, watched her mother die, just... Uh, kind of emotionless she's just sitting there or standing there rather showing zero emotion kind of the same look she was giving when she walked in the house and was sniffing around this bullshit from a mile away uh but you know whatever child actors they never claim to be award winners the uh bride tells her that it wasn't her intention to do this in front of her and apologizes it says her mother had it coming she then says when she grows up and still feels raw about it she'll be waiting and then she leaves. Bill always said you were one of the best ladies he ever saw with an edge weapon. Fuck you, bitch. I know he didn't qualify that shit. So you can just kiss my motherfucking ass, Black Mamba. Black Mamba. I should have been motherfucking Black Mamba. Weapon of choice? Hey, if you want to stick with your butcher knife, that's fine with me. Very funny, bitch. Very funny, bitch!
It's not my intention to do this in front of you. For that, I'm sorry. But you can take my word for it. Your mother had it coming. that's pretty badass the way she tells yeah. it, you know granted it's a little like eight-year-old she's telling off but it's still like kind of a boss way to leave, to leave she's like and it's right and she's true it's like you know you still feel raw about this down the road like 15 20 years you know i'll be around so get your vengeance in if you want and uh i think that is the perfect time to talk about what we both think could be a volume three of this do we let's first the question should be do we think that there is going to be a kill bill volume three now that could be either in the form of well no it's got to be quentin at this point because who else because the the weinsteins had the rights to it unless the studio whoever has the rights technically go ahead without Quentin's consent but who the fuck's gonna sign up and either rather watch a Kill Bill not done you know through the lens of Quentin Tarantino yeah I just don't see it happening because he I don't know he it just strikes me as a type even though he might go back to a certain genre he just strikes me as a type who's not gonna do like big into sequels <laughs> you know like I just don't Tarantino seems like the guy he just likes to write, come up with stories. And I feel like he's always going to have a new original story to come up with. So I but I don't know. I, I would just say it's unlikely that he would come let's back. Let's just I, hypothetically say it happens. You would consider it a sequel? Yeah, like if, if she tracks down, because the whole setup that, you know, the rumor or whatever is that, you know, the Rihanna. daughter Nikki would uh, grow up and Go after Thurman. Yeah. Or Rihanna. Yeah. <laughs> I heard Rihanna. I heard uh, Maya Hawke's name. Um, not as uh, the, uh, Nikki, but as uh, the bride's daughter. Uh, from that. You know, I'll, I'll just say one more thing. I think the only way Tarantino would possibly do it is if, obviously, Uma Thurman was involved. Because I think that would be the only thing that would kind of draw him back in to even necessarily wanting to do another one is because he would want to work with her again. And I don't know how old Thurman is, but she's like, she's in her upper forties. If she's not, if she hasn't reached 50 yet, she's up there. Like she's like 47, 48, 49. So Um, I just don't see her wanting to do another like martial arts type movie or or revenge type movie when she's like in her sixties or something. So I would think they would have to move, you know, somewhere in the near future. She's 51. Almost 50. She'll be 52 next month. Um, oh, wow. I was today years old when I learned that Uma Thurman was married to Gary Oldman for two years. Holy shit. I never knew that. Wow. Did you know that? 
No, I didn't know that. She was married to Gary Oldman from 1990 to 1992. Holy shit. I never knew that. To be fair, we I, I thought her first point. and only was Ethan <laughs> Hawke, to be honest. What'd you say? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, we were pretty young at that point, so I mean, it's not like we we're going to No, but still, I, 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 come on, Corey, I, 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 I'm a dork when it comes to shit like this. Like, there was a time in my life when I would just sit there and just go into, like, the deepest, darkest fucking rabbit holes when, when both IMDb and Wikipedia, when it comes to movies and celebrities and shit, especially when I was... I'm not even going to say because I feel like a jackass. But yeah, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, I'm surprised I never saw this or, or read this before. I I, I've, I would have never even connected these two people together at any point in, in life. So, hey man, good on both of them. I'm not disgusted by it. I'm just surprised that I never knew that. So anyway, getting back to uh, volume three. Um... Uh, yeah, I think at this point, like, if it's going to happen, it needs to happen soon. Um, but, okay. So, think about this. Let's say, let's see how this works. He's kind of a tenth movie. Whether or not that's going to be his last movie, whatever. It's up to Tarantino himself to, you know, decide whether or not he wants to follow through with something that he said years ago. People are holding on to for dear life. He's, he anyway, loves it too much. He's not going to step away after 10. I think he's full of shit. Well, look. At this point, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis had the same thing when Phantom Thread came out. What's that been? Four or five years now? No, it hasn't been that long. It's been like three, four years. Uh, and he's still retired and has... We haven't even heard about him. He's up in a cottage somewhere doing his thing. Swimming in money. Uh, so yeah, whether or not it happens, I, I don't know. I really don't have an opinion of the matter. I just not off the top of my head. We'll see. Uh... Shit, where were we? What were we just talking about? <laughs> I'm, I just, you were I just talking about lost. volume three. Oh yeah, back to volume three. So uh after he does the tenth film or whatever, uh if he wants to like write this and like pass the directing duties to someone else that he tr- appoints personally and like can trust. But again, he's gonna write it. So I don't know. But you can do it that way. Uh, I personally wouldn't look at it as a sequel, though. Getting back to that point, I think I would look at more of it. It's like a, it's just a continuation, uh, not not necessarily a sequel. Um, hence the volume three, you know. Anyway, uh, let's get back to this. So we see uh the list. We see the list, and uh, first thing I notice is. Oren, Lucy Liu's character, her name is already crossed off. So, he's already, Tarantino has already spoiled the audience that one character is already dead. Funny enough, it is the next character we see her going after, so we know how that outcome's gonna be. Uh, but that's not what's important. It is about the journey. And so, uh, she crosses off Anita's name, which, uh, she does so and then drives away. 
Now, let's talk about this list, alright? Uh, each person on this list represents a different genre that Tarantino was going for with this movie. Now, again, at the top of this episode, I talked about this being like a smorgasbord of genres. And here's that explained further. So, Vivica A. Fox's Copperhead represents black exploitation cinema like Your Coffee or even Jackie Brown, the last film that he did. Uh, Cotton, uh, Lucy Liu, her, her Cottonmouth character represents martial arts and like your samurai Yakuza movies. Tarantino, uh, and then my notes on the other two characters, uh, uh, L, uh, L Driver from Daryl Hannah and uh, Bud, uh, Michael Madsen. I'll talk about what they represent in the next episode, although we've kind of already talked about what Bud represents, and that's obviously like your Western type. Um, so it's also worth mentioning that, you know, there's other genres too outside of what I just mentioned. So, off the top of my head, so you got Yakuza, Samurai, like I just mentioned, Spaghetti Western, I mentioned that before earlier. Also, you even got like Italian Giallo in this a little bit. There's even a goddamn De Palma scene in this movie uh, that I love, by the way. And the last note that I have here that I want to talk about before we continue is the fact that this movie was shot chronologically and not. Like, according to, like, this. Because how Tarantino fucks with time. Not according to, like, how he filmed it. Like, uh, it was shot, like... You know, it, it was shot, like, chronologically, chronologically, like, in real time. The way it was meant to be. Like, the first thing they shot was the massacre in the church. And then they went on and went to, you know, Japan. And did the whole thing with Lucy Liu. And then they went to wherever, I'm assuming L.A., to do Vivica Fox, and then so on and so forth, you know, just according, they, they shot it in, in the order of the story. Uh, so, uh, then we're in chapter two. We're already in chapter two, The Blood Splattered Bride. So, it's four years and six months earlier, and we're in El Paso. Uh, enter Michael Parks. His character, <laughs> Earl, Mag- Earl McGraw. Now, does he look familiar? Yeah, recurring character. Yeah. Yeah, where have we seen him before? Uh, he was in, uh, was it, From Dust Till Dawn? From Dust Till Dawn. In the opening scene, funny enough, he is the cop who gets his head blown off by the uh, Karen Quentin Tarantino, of all people, funny enough. Uh, yeah, I, actually, I just watched that with Madeline about two, three weeks ago. It's funny we talk about that. And I didn't tell her about the swerve halfway through either. She was blown the fuck away. Like, wait a minute, what the hell are we watching? Like, yeah, <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you? So, um, yeah, same character. I love it. And it's not the last time we're going to see him in a movie either because he shows up in uh, goddamn Grindhouse in uh, the, the, the first one, Planet Terror. Yeah, Planetaire. Yeah, uh, yeah, Planetaire. And then the guy that's with him is his son in both real life and in character. It's uh, it's James Parks who's playing uh, Edgar uh, uh, Edgar McGraw. 
So yeah, the the Earl Bagral character, like he he has been in a bunch of stuff. He's just got. I mean, Michael Park shows up in a lot of stuff as well. He's even, if I'm not mistaken, a different character in Volume Two. Uh, but in this for now, he is uh, this Earl McGraw character who is just, you know, I mean, he's just no different than any other, like, just southern Texas sheriff that you've seen. He just is a man of the law. This is old school. Yeah, he's a good know, old boy. By the book. Yeah. Exactly, by the book. And, uh, yeah, it's funny enough, the first time we ever see him in anything, from Dust Alone, he gets killed off five minutes in. And then he's like got these other films that obviously take place prior to From Dust Alone. It's like this great big like universe that both Tarantino and Rodriguez have like built. You know, if uh I wouldn't be surprised if like the Desperado story is somehow milked into this, you know, universe as well. It would not surprise me one bit. Hey, real quick, I know we're going to talk about this Friday on Fewercast, but I want to get it out of the way now because I really want to talk about it. This fucking slap hurt around the world. Will Smith, Chris Rock. What do you think about this? I mean, it was just crazy to watch. Like, you know, I I, because I saw like the joke he made, like with G.I. Jane to Chris Rock. Making a joke. It was a terrible joke. Not not even just in taste, whether or not... I've seen people, like, defend Rock saying, like, oh, he didn't know. It's like, well, she made a pretty big, you know, thing about, you know, the, the reveal when she did it a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, everyone knew he, about it, so... He I definitely if, knew. He yeah, he known. definitely knew. And it was I'm a not stupid fu- I mean, really, dude, G.I. Jane, come on. My fucking 12-year-old, yeah. 12-year-old, my 14-year-old could think of a better joke than that. I think making fun of anybody who has a condition that they can't help is terrible, whether it's just a like a light joke or not, unless they're friends to me, that's kind of bad. Like she can't help it. You know, she has a condition. It is what well, it is. They, they did what, three Madagascar films together. So, yeah, I mean, they might be friends. I don't know the whole situation, but uh, you know, to me, it wasn't like the worst thing to joke about, but it is kind of wrong to joke about something somebody can't help but then like will smith didn't even seem like he was mad at first like you see the joke he's like he laughed he's just kind of i laughing. counted it dude he laughed and three seconds later he was marching up towards rock and i'm so, like wait a Jada minute Pink- what the fuck happened within three seconds come Jada on Pinkett, like, he turned to the side and jada's like yeah i didn't like that, that. like she like, said finish something. him and you know I think what Will Smith did was completely wrong. Whether how strongly yeah, he felt, yeah, that's yeah, one yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. You cannot Absolutely. walk up and assault people. To me, it's an assault. Like he hit Chris Rock. And, for and he's real. lucky Rock. He he's lucky Rock denied his press charges, you know. And real quick, I want to get this out of the way too, because a lot of people have been bringing this up. No, it was not staged. That shit was hundred no. percent genuine. And if you think it was staged, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't watch, you think, watch you're probably the unedited. someone who thinks fake news is everything and believe me yep. this shit was real okay watch was the, the academy stage or something yeah exactly watch what he says afterwards you cannot stage nah. it trust me the he's academy's mad. not gonna risk fcc violations 
for for ratings. It's not that you know, no, 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 no. You can hear the legitimate... you can hear the contact made on on Rock's mic and everything. It was legit. No, it was legitimate anger. It was a real hit. You could see the shock on Chris Rock's face. It was definitely real. But I can't defend Will Smith. He should not have done that. I don't know. Has he apologized or anything or said yeah, anything? See, he's, he, uh, as of a few hours ago before this recording, he uh, on his Instagram, he uh, had a lengthy apology uh, posted. Okay, but Rock hasn't he responded to it. As he should. Because even if Rock was in the wrong for that joke, Will Smith was definitely in the wrong. You never just walk up and hit somebody because you don't like what they said. That's like that's what I teach my three-year-old. You don't hit somebody because you don't like something. Use your words. Talk it out. Yeah. And then the, the whole thing, like not even a half hour later or whatever it was, he goes and wins Best Actor. Talk about an <laughs> awkward moment. Holy <laughs> shit. Wow. I mean, phew. Tension in that room. That's one place I'm glad I was not at. And I was sleeping when it happened, too. I woke up and I saw a group thread like you, Justin, Corey, and Andrew were all talking about it. And I'm like, wait, Chris Rock? What, what, what the fuck happened? So I immediately grabbed my phone and I knew I could trust TMZ to be a reliable source. So I immediately went to that site. Of course, the video was right there, front page, front and center. And I was like, oh, shit. I looked it up, watched it. They had the uncensored, they had the censored clip. So I went to... Uh, I think Reddit or somewhere, and I, or Twitter, and I went and got, I watched the, I think it was the Australian feed that had the full audible, you know, keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. He says it twice, and I'm like, damn, and his voice is just echoing, because you can't hear a pin drop in that theater at that moment, because everyone's just in shock at what just happened, and then to add to it, he goes and says what he says, that just, you can that's a that's a that's a big open auditorium that they filmed that in so uh, i'm sure that voice echoed and the people in the very back and he allowed and clear what big willie had to say to chris rock so uh but yeah to, it, it's just the more i think about it the the more it's just just filled with hypocrisy and uh um it's 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 definitely something that's going to be talked about for for decades for years this is just going to be i mean he definitely created a moment just not the right kind you know so i don't know i just like i said we'll have more to say about that this friday on fewer casts including justin andrew and sean's opinion on the matter so getting back to uh kill bill though uh, so like I said, uh, chronological, all that. So we're at chapter two, the blood splattered bride. And, uh, okay. Yeah. So we talked about, uh, Earl McGraw and all. So McGraw, the McGraws, they are at the scene of the crime of, of the bride's massacre, the aftermath. And he's, you know, his son says everyone's accounted for. There's nine bodies are all dead. And, uh, he looks down, you know, uh, he makes the comment how she was, you know, used, used to be a beautiful or pretty thing or whatever. And then, like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she, like, fucking spits up blood into his face. And he goes, son number one, this tall drinker cocksucker ain't dead. And he just wipes the spit from his face. It's fucking hilarious. This, fam- this, this, I actually had to rewind it and watch it again because I was laughing so hard at it. 
just the, the, the timing of it all. Like the way she just reacts, wakes up and spits in his face naturally. And he's just like kind of slowly looks down like in just astonishment. Just wipes the spit off his face. And he's just like, he's tall, like a cocksucker ain't dead. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so then we cut to the bride in a coma. And we see Daryl Hannah's Ellie Drive. Uh, Ellie Driver, sorry. Ellie Driver, a.k.a. California Mountain Snake. He's coming in for her to kill her while whistling. Did you, know, did you pick up on this theme when she's whistling? It's a common theme. We've heard it before and whatever. But do you know what it is? I do, but do uh, you? No, I mean, I know what it sounds like, but I don't know what the theme uh, is to now. So it's the theme from an old horror film called The Twister, The Twisted Nerve, which uh, eventually you would hear the theme song actually played as she's whistling it towards the end of the scene. So she's preparing to kill her. She's got this cocktail that she's going to inject into her IV, kill her that way. And we also get our De Palma split shot that was made famous in Carrie. So this is Tarantino paying homage to De Palma. And Carrie, which is horror, so therefore we have our horror element in this movie. Um, and she goes over the bride, and she leans over her, and uh, right before she goes to inject, you know, she says she despises her but respects her, and then she goes to inject her IV when Bill calls and asks what her condition is, and. After she says what she does, he tells her to abort the mission, and he says that they owe her. And he reminds her the number one, the the number that they all did on her, and if she ever wakes up, that they'll do a lot more. And then and, 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 uh, they won't sneak into her room like a rat and kill her in her sleep. So he tells her to come on home before telling her that he loves her very much. And. Daryl Hannah, man, just, I don't know. Daryl Hannah, I want to talk about her because I just feel like she's just a name that isn't often brought up and or discussed. And uh, I don't know. I'm a big White, uh, Wall Street fan. And, uh, you know, she's from that, obviously. Was you know, never the biggest Splash fan, so I really can't, you know, bring that in. But this... And, uh, um, that, <laughs> why am I drawing a little bit? I just, <laughs> talk, I, I just talked about it. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, this and Wall Street, uh, are, are two, uh, pivotal roles. And of course you have other stuff. Like, of course, you know, people are going to say, uh, Blade Runner and Steel Magnolias, which actually funny enough, I, grew up because my mother and grandmother were big fans of that movie so naturally when I was spending a lot of those weekends at my grandmother's house she was watching either Steel Magnolias or her favorite movie Made in America with Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson <laughs> there's some fun field trivia for you my grandmother the see, late the late great Myrtle her I favorite see Myrtle movie watching was that. Made in America yeah yeah she fucking and Pete watching that movie. Pete watching his westerns or whatever he was watching. John Wayne. Yeah. He had a whole, he had a fucking room dedicated to the fucking cowboy dude. He loved John Wayne. So yeah, dude, Wall Street. I guess I'll throw Steel Magnolias in there. Grumpy old men. Grumpy old oh, yeah. men. Gotta put that. Yeah, I forgot in she was in that. 
big fans of those movies. Um, just childhood memories. Haven't seen the movies uh, in a handful of years, so I can't really talk about them or speak on them now. But I grew up watching them. They were childhood films of mine. So I saw Grumpier Old Man in the theater. <laughs> I I just want to say, like, Daryl Hannah, like, her character in this movie, she is just, like, a mean, hard bitch in, like, this movie. Like, there is, like, no redeeming quality. Like, Vivica A. Fox, like, her character, like, you know, she's at least pretends to be somewhat remorseful. But he's like, ah, you know, she deserves revenge, you know, like. Well, look at the way she reacts to the news that they can't kill her right there. The way yeah. she reacts to it, like it just flips the fuck out. You hear, her like, uh, yeah, yeah. You just hear she is just like a hardcore bitch, and then obviously you see more in the volume too that makes it even worse. That makes her even worse. It's just she is like such a heartless, evil person, and she pulls uh, Daryl Hannah pulls it off well in both films. So it's four years later, and we see a mosquito land on the bride and start sucking on her arm when suddenly she wakes up and remembers what Bill did and envisions the bullet hitting her. Like, as soon as the bullet makes contact, like, she sees it coming to her head, and she just, like, just freaks out. So her reaction to looking down at her belly and screaming out because there's no more baby, it is just a fucking scene of misery and uh, I don't know as a parent I I, I, I mean I'm, I'm not a mother obviously but I can only imagine just the trauma because like that's one of the first things she does is like reaches down for her belly because that's like she's been out for four years but the first thing she remembers is hey I got a baby inside of me what, what what's going on and just naturally it's the first thing she looks down for and when she realizes there's no baby there. That scream that she lets out, man. God yeah. Damn. Uma Thurman sells it well. I mean, for a good revenge movie, usually you got to have someone go through a whole bunch of shit. And she goes through a whole bunch of shit in this movie. And this is why it works so well. When she, you know, gets her revenge later, it makes it so satisfying seeing her sell this scene and really pull it off. Who had the better reaction, Uma Thurman in Kill Bill Volume 1 or Bruce Willis in Death Wish? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Bruce Willis, oh no. <laughs> oh. Like I don't even remember what it was, but I'm sure it was just him reading a line or whatever. My baby girl, oh no, I'm going to get them. <laughs> I'm going to get them. And I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> I'm not going to kill you. Jack is... <laughs> uh, alright so uh, footsteps are approaching and she goes back to pretending that she's in a coma and we see Michael Bowen and Adam Sandler's BFF Jonathan Lothran I love them so much the girls at Madame Kamei's Filipino Palace You've been spending <laughs> our rent money on Filipino hookers They're not hookers They're massage therapists they, yeah. you know, massage your cock for money. Think there's a name for that? Yeah, hookers. <laughs> Fucking grandma's boy. <laughs> You're a hooker. You're a hooker. Yeah. Fucking Kevin Nash. <laughs> yeah. Goes up. Uh, I, it's him. just odd seeing him. It's just odd seeing him in a like a non-Sandler production. I forget that he was in other stuff. Not much. Pretty much just this, and I think there might have been one I know, other but movie that he popped. Maybe, up but in, I'm but... just saying, like. 
I just think of him and Sandler. That's it. Like I, I completely forgot he was even in this movie. <laughs> I wonder how he got this role too. Do you think he was like Tarantino was probably trying to get Adam Sandler for a role or something, and Sandler's like, ah, I don't know, QT, I don't know, but I got my boy here, Jonathan. He was up for the job. He can get it done. And then I can just see him just standing there looking at him with the, the one crooked eye, like. Because he always has like I don't a know. crooked eye in a lot of the movies that he's in. That's if we ever have a gimmick. conversation, if we ever have a conversation episode with either Quentin Tarantino or um, what's the other guy's name, the Adam Sandler guy, Jonathan Lofran. Yeah, either one of them will have to ask him, like, how the fuck did you end up in this movie, or how the fuck did you cast him in this movie? Funny story about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, this fucking scene's disgusting, though. So, uh, comes in, and, uh, I don't know, man. She fucking bites off the bottom of it. So, he gets off top of her, and first, like, this whole description of, like, you know, he's been doing this, like, like 40-something women, or I can't remember the number. He's done this a lot of times. He just pretty much pays Bowen. Bowen gives him lube because he's like, sometimes their vaginas dry up, so here's this. And it's like, ah, I didn't need that fucking detail, dude. And like, he gives him like 20 minutes to just basically just fuck her while she's in a coma. And it's like, this is like the yeah. most, who thinks of this? Whatever. QT, I get it. And uh, he doesn't even get a chance. He goes to fucking start kissing her. Next thing you know, she's got a fucking hold in his lower lip. And he's screaming out, and she just bites that thing off. And apparently that kills him. Apparently that was enough to do I know, the job. I, I didn't understand that part, because, like, when he, you know, you see him, like, on the Is ground. Is there an artery like, underneath the bottom lip that I don't know about? Because it's yeah. like, he's just got blood coming from the bottom of his mouth like he's fucking Dracula. And that's apparently what did it. Like, he does not... There's no fight or nothing. Like he's just screaming out as she's biting his lip and pulling down, and then it cuts to him on the ground with the blood over his fucking bottom mouth. And I'm like, okay, I guess that kills people. I mean, I, I get it; he deserves to die. I'm just questioning the how. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, me too. It didn't make much sense. So, all right, whatever. So Uncle Jack comes in. And gets his Achilles sliced, and then his head gets smashed in by the door, and she realizes that his name is Buck, and he came to fuck. She remembers, you know, he, he too was just, you know, pretty fucking treating her like just a disgusting, vile piece of thing. And yeah, because I takes, don't think, I don't think her intention was to kill him initially. I think she just wanted information when she started slamming his head, but then you see her remember, like, I'm Buck and I'm here to fuck, and then that's when she really starts fucking banging his head in between the door. Just one vicious slip. She does it with one yeah. fucking vicious cock. She takes his fucking Elvis sunglasses and pushes herself down to the parking garage afterwards, where she finds the pussy wagon. And, uh, yeah, let's talk about this vile piece of 2003, shall we? Yeah. So this is like, this is the kind of shit you would find like done up on Pimp My Ride with Exhibit or something. Like this is the shit you would see of like these like all like 
the, the, these speakers and 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 just bass amplifiers and shit in the back, just needless supply of of bass and are uh, uh, just I don't, I don't know. Um, I I I just when I when I see vehicles like this, I cringe so fucking hard. Yeah, because you take a pickup truck that is really practical and turn it into something that's not practical because he has a hard top cover over the bed, so you can't use the bed. Like It's just yeah, a cruising right. vehicle to look cool, and it's never made any sense to me why somebody does that to a vehicle. I mean, it worked because this thing showed up in a Missy Elliott video, and then it showed up in the, the video for Telephone from Lady Gaga, and... Uh, I forgot whoever whoever else was on that song. I'm not the world's biggest Lady Lady Gaga fan. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, uh, telephone. Uh, Beyonce. That's duh. The 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 Queen Bee, as people call her. She, she, that 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 makes an appearance in that video because they're driving around in it. Uh, good video though. I like that video. By the way, Lady Gaga Telephone. Just check that out for free. I know it, it's a very old video. It came out like 12 years ago, but. It's very good, and I recommend it because it's kind of cinematic. It's got a movie-like feel to it. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, a part of that got banned on MTV because that was like at the tail end of the era where MTV stopped showing videos. But that's another conversation for another yeah, you're getting episode. getting off track here. The uh, <laughs> bride starts to wiggle her toes. Well, she tries to. She uh, needs to wake up the little piggies, wake up the big toe, and plus we got to get Quentin Tarantino's, you know, foot shot, trademark foot, got to get that in, and <laughs> uh, just after some time she does so, also while remembering and telling us about the Deadly International Viper Assassination Squad, or D.Va for short. Uh, the, the story goes to chapter three, and the origin of Oren. Wiggle your big toe. Wiggle your big toe. As I lay in the back of Buck's truck, trying to will my limbs out of entropy. Wiggle your big toe. I could see the faces of the cunts who did this to me. And the dicks responsible. Members all of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. When fortune smiles on something as violent and ugly as revenge, it seems proof like no other that not only does God exist, you're doing his will. At a time when I knew the least about my enemies, the first name on my death list, Oren Ishii, was the easiest to find. But of course, when one manages the difficult task of becoming queen of the Tokyo underworld, one doesn't keep it a secret, does one? We're told that she was born on an American military, in an American military base in Tokyo. At the age of nine, she saw her parents murdered by a crime boss. And uh, yeah, Lucy Liu. So she plays Oman in this. And do you know how she got this job? Uh, no, I don't know, actually. Uh, Tarantino was a fan of Shanghai Noon. He liked to run it. <laughs> Not Charlie's Angels, but Shanghai Noon. That was the uh, film that did him in. And he immediately had to have her in it. So he kind of wrote the role for her. 
got her to uh, sign in, and uh, yeah, does a good job. So her introduction is kind of like shown in the form of an animated flashback of the yeah. of her family's death, and uh, we see her avenging them at the age of eleven because the man responsible is a diddler. And by 20, she was one of the top assassins in the world. And at 25, she helped murder nine innocent people, including the bride. Her only mistake is she should have killed 10. So this, let's get back a little bit. The animation sequence. So it was inspired by a Bollywood film from Kamal Hassan's 2001 film, uh, Alavandan. And there's uh, no doubt Tarantino used this sequence, rather, uh, in animated form to get yet another film or another pass through the MPA. Because there's no doubt if you would actually shot this sequence in, in, real, in real time, like with real actors and shit, like it wouldn't fly. We already have a story to come later on with the crazy 88s and all that bullshit, why it's black and white. He got through cheating the system that way, but yeah, I'm I I like this. It's obvious, like I said, he's got the Bollywood inspiration. He's got that tied into it, you know. Of of course, we have the anime aspect tying back into the Japanese culture. Um, I like yeah. it. I remember when I first saw it, I was kind of fifty fifty on it. Like I didn't quite understand it, but again. I'm a lot older now and a lot wiser, and this is the kind of shit that I eat the fuck up and appreciate. So, definitely yeah. dug it. Uh, it's well done. I, I mean, it yeah. looks it looks exactly you know like any other anime I've seen, and it you know it's just something you don't see every day. You don't see a live action movie spliced with an anime, and I think it's a good way to have the flashback and you know see the origins of Lucy Liu's character, and it's. A memorable part of the movie for me, for sure. It's like one that always stands out in my head is this whole anime sequence. Yep. So the toe finally wiggles. So she gets the other piggies to wiggle before stepping out of the aforementioned pussy wagon. And then gets it back in and drives off to air queue for Okinawa. One way ticket. Chapter four. The man from Okinawa. Uh, she sees Sonny Chiba. Sonny Chiba's Hattori Hanzo, who is a wisecracking sushi chef who used to be a master swordsman. Swordsmith, sorry. And she doesn't know it's him, though. Um, and then, of course, you know he gives her a lesson in pronunciation. She's pretty good, but she's not great. Uh, she wants war- uh, warm sake. And, uh, I like the uh, the the assistant uh, for for uh, Tori. He's like in the middle of the afternoon, and we get this funny exchange between the two of them, this banter, and uh, you know him and his assistant, whoever he is, before he uh, asks what brings her. I'm sorry, what brings her to Okinawa? And she says she's there to see a friend she's never met named Hatori Hanzo about needing Japanese steel. And she's got vermin to kill. So then he shows her up to this attic room upstairs uh, with this collection of swords. Oh, excuse me. This room, up, room upstairs with this collection of swords. 
It's all Japanese steel. He says, it's funny she likes samurai swords because he likes baseball. And he throws his baseball. She takes it and slices it in half with the sword. Now, the... Yeah, we'll talk about it later. There's, there's actually... Probably curious how this was filmed. Believe it or not, it was practical. More on that later on. Um, and he reveals to himself, you know, Tori Hanzo, and he says that he's retired and puts the sword back. She says she wants him to give her one from his collection. He asks why he would do that, and she says the vermin's a fellow student of his, and his name is Bill. She doesn't say his name is Bill. She actually writes Bill's name in the condensation on the window. Uh, or he does, yeah. And uh <laughs> ここにおいてあるのは苦行と思い出の品として置いてあるだけのこともちろん自分の策には誇りを持っておるだが私はもう引退しておる Then give me one of these. These are not for sale. I didn't say sell me. I said give me. <laughs> Why should I help you? Because my vermin is a former student of yours. And considering the student, I'd say you have a He tells her to come back in a month. In the meantime, you know, he's got room and board for her and she can just stay there and practice with his collection Yeah, in the meantime. So, one month goes by and she's got her sword. So then we get to chapter 5, Showdown, a house at blue leaves. So, we're first introduced here to Oren's number 2 bodyguard, Gogo Yobori. And the leader of the crazy 88, crazy 88 gang. Sorry. Uh, then we see Boss Tanaka. He's uh, the leader of this crime uh, syndicate. He's pissed off at this council table. He starts insulting the council. And then he calls Oren a Chinese Jap American half breed bitch. And she just runs up, like, she kind of like pedals really fast up towards him. And just the way she does it, it's so quick and slick. Just. As she's taking it out of the fucking holder or whatever, she just slices it out, slices his head clean off that way as she's taking her sword out of her case. Um, and it just fucking gushes like a fucking faucet, dude. And then she warns the rest of the council in a humoristic manner, along with Julie Dreyfus translating everything in the background, which is a funny touch to me. 
As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. If you're unconvinced a particular plan of action I've decided is the wisest, tell me so. But allow me to convince you, and I promise you right here and now, no subject will ever be taboo. Except, of course, the subject that was just under discussion. The price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is, I collect your fucking head. Just like this fucker here. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time! I didn't think so. So, originally, uh, Tarantino yeah. wanted an entire subplot with uh, Gogo Yobari's even crazier sister, but it was cut due to budget and time. Uh, should also mention... There was a lot of spontaneous ideas during the production of this movie because Tarantino was famously writing and crafting ideas for the movie as they were shooting. So in reality, in a sense, he was making the film longer and longer as they were filming. Um, And yeah, so this is also a good point to mention the makeup effects done by K&B effects. Now, I should also take this time to refer people to our Scream episode last October during the Halloween Horrorthon, where Sean and I got an opportunity to talk to the B in K&B, Howard Berger. Um, he's in that episode for an hour. It was like an hour and a half that him and I and Sean talked. So fucking down to earth. Such a good guy. Um, happy to call him a friend. Uh, I met him a couple years ago during a watch along that my buddy buddy Jonathan shout out Crazy Train Radio, good podcast, check it out. Uh, he did a watch along with um, what movie did we do? I think it was. Uh, I forgot the movie. Christ, I cannot. Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That's right. It was Wes Craven's New Nightmare watch along. With Greg Digat- with uh, not Greg Nicotero, he's the end in KB, with Howard Berger. And then after that, um, him and I swapped information on Instagram and kind of went back and forth for a little while. And uh, yeah, I just randomly hit him up around this time last year. And I'm like, dude, it's 25th anniversary of Scream. And uh, yeah, he agreed to come on around you know, Halloween, whenever we did the episode. So, KB effects, like I said, here doing the uh, makeup of, uh, stuff, and, you know, yeah. they, Nicotero, The Walking Dead, that's all I have to say to describe, you know. And they, they started out with Day of the Dead, Evil Dead 2, they were like the first two movies under the KB uh, manor. And then, uh, actually, their first official film was Intruder, Scott Spiegel's movie, which is one of the bloodiest, goriest slasher films of the 80s, hands down. And that's why. And then they went on to do a lot of sequels from the late 80s. They did Elm Street 5, Halloween 5, uh, like I said, uh, aforementioned West Craven's New Nightmare, um, uh, Jurassic Park, they had a hand in that, um, Oh, no, not, 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 I'm sorry, they, they used that for inspiration, I believe. Um, 
I don't know, but they, they just just look it up. Howard Berger would go on to actually win an Academy Award for uh, the makeup for the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe back in 2005. Um, and, and yeah, just again, most down to earth guy. Check that episode out. So KMB's here doing the effects for this movie. Um, they did a handful of Tarantino films. They would also go on to do uh, Django. They would also do Hateful Eight. Uh, and yeah, I think they had a hand in some of the effects. They did for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That, that The whole finale and shit. So yeah, they're here doing this. Love K&B. We've talked about them before on the show. Uh I'm a fan of the effects in this. Like they, they definitely went for the stylized, like, you know, exploitation, grindhouse, house, Yakuza type thing with all the blood shooting out. And I think it works really well and adds a lot to the movie. And this is, you know, this just oh, yeah. adds to the scene, seeing the blood just shoot out when the yeah, head wanted, comes off. Yeah. I wanted to ask you how, how would you, what you thought about K and B if you were a fan, if you were familiar with them or anything like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, day of the dead, you know, I know a lot, everybody picks Dawn as her favorite. Day of the Dead isn't far behind for me. I, I think that that movie is a masterpiece and the the gore is no exception. I've always been a fan of Walking Dead. I mean, I still watch it kind of even just, I guess, because I've watched so much of it. I want to finish <laughs> just it. Just the way you said that, you were like, like, I still watch it kind of. <laughs> but honestly, the effects are part of what keeps me coming back because I want to see because they always have such cool ideas. You know, with like the yeah. fire smoking zombies and stuff. I, you know, I always just David did a on Breaking Bad. Oh yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, they, like uh, that that whole like uh, Gus, his death at the end of season four. That was K and B, um, and some other stuff on that show too. You know, not a whole lot because it's not like a lot that's required on that show, but. Yeah, they definitely did it when it was needed because I guess they had, you know, that AMC connection. AMC's like, hey, boys, they're busy doing Walking Dead for us, but can you come over here and help us with this other show that we got going on? So, yeah. Um, that's where I'm at, my notes. You're talking about the whole board scene, and I I just love how quick and swift Aranishi is and, like, just taking this guy's head off, like, you just see she is the fucking crime boss and is there's no one going to be fucking with her. She could be reasonable, but if you question her leadership, she's going to fucking cut your head off. And I just love and that that's part. That's exactly what she tells them all, fucking point, point blank. Uh, so then, yeah, one ticket to Tokyo, please. And this is when we see uh, Beatrix Kiddo, the name on the ticket. It's, it's a blink and you miss it thing, but if you pause it, it's right there. Right before we see the effect of the plane going over on the globe, you see like the a glimpse of her passport and her name's written out right there. So yeah, so then we get our Tokyo montage along with the I to me it's famous the the low flying plane that's landing that's straight from the fucking yeah. trailers, the um, miniatures and the low flying plane. Yeah, it, yeah, it's just so stylized and cool looking. Even though if you can tell it's miniatures, it's still. Such an iconic shot in the it trailer. Is very, it is, really is. Um, and first question I'm watching this, and I'm like, so the bride's allowed to carry her sword aboard the plane like this? Because she's just looking out the window, holding her fucking sword. Like, I, at first I'm watching the scene real quick, and I'm like, 
when was this come out? When was 9-11? Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, I know it's not American you know, airlines, but I'm sure like globally, a lot of airlines amped up security and shit. I don't think there's a single one that would allow this shit. But you know what? I guess I'm just getting too realistic with the conversation here or whatever. I don't know. Am I alone? Any yeah, my I thoughts know. in this? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the Japanese culture that well, so I don't know if that's a normal thing to carry around a samurai sword. I feel like it's not in modern I, day. I, I can't be. Exactly. I, I can't feel like I, I can't be illegal, can it? I mean, it can't be legal, can it? Yeah, I don't know unless like the pilot's like a samurai too. So he's like, I'll just fight them off if they try to take the plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking love it. Uh, so the bride starts following uh, Julie Dreyfus's Sophie Fatale and remembers... Uh, her at the scene of the murder. She's apparently on the phone laughing and smiling away while the horror is being carried out. So, Oren and her crew are entering the House of Blue Leaves and they head upstairs to her room. When, so, the idea from this scene, when she comes in and beautiful walk-in shot, although we get an even better one later on with that, uh, following shot on Uma. So there's a band there, the five, six, seven, eight that are playing. And Yeah. Yeah, they're they're pretty cool. Yeah. Oh they are I, definitely I like that. It's a good touch. So in like, Quentin ter- the, sto- the story behind them, do you know the story behind how they made it into this movie? Yeah. Like he heard him he was in uh Japan like scouting or something, I think, and then he heard the music one of the it was like a clothing shop. Like he was looking for yeah. clothes. Yep. And he bought the CD from the uh, clothing shop and got in touch and got him in. Yeah, he asked to buy the record. And they said that they couldn't. And they directed him to the Tower Records. And he's like, yeah, I don't have time for that. I got a plane to catch. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to give you money plus more so you can buy it or whatever. And they had, apparently had to call the manager. And the manager okayed it. And he ended up buying it for like 7 bucks plus whatever he gave him on top of that. And he made out like a scout. And... uh yeah, turned out for the best for uh, them because, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize until rewatching this, they're the fucking band behind all that that, that song, though. song that I still to this day fucking sing to myself out loud sometimes I hum to myself this song it's in like what every Expedia commercial or some shit like that like yeah, it's, it it's still a song campaign. I hear yeah. today in ads so thanks 5678 and even more thanks Quentin Tarantino um so yeah let's talk about the culture here speaking of Japan and Tokyo and all so there's a lot of like very there, there were on set a lot of various language to language translators running around so I can only imagine how like just hectic that could have that or overwhelming and hectic yeah that's the right word was you know with all that going on because there are definitely a lot of cultures and a lot of different languages spoken throughout this movie. And I can only imagine, like, 
everyone having like different translators and, and you know stuff like that so that's a little funny tidbit I read about and uh, so and also apparently he used native workers in whatever country they were in as uh, the crew that was what the crew consisted of he wanted yeah. to take in each he culture want- yeah he didn't want to come in and be like the Hollywood crew that comes right. in and tells everybody what to do he wanted to Take, you know, just do what the locals did and make a movie with them involved. You know? Which I think is fucking boss. I think it's like a really good, you know, just show of just appreciation. And, uh, you know, kind of like you did this for me. So in return, just want you guys come on board and, you know, make some money and we'll show you how to do this and that. And you can make a little cash on top, on top of it. How's, how's, that, how's that sound? And that's what happened, and I'll, I appreciate the hell out of QT for doing that. So, um, I, I imagine on their shoot here in Japan for this whole sequence, uh, that it, it probably took uh, a lot. <laughs> so, um, well, this whole sequence took like two months to shoot. I think it took eight the, weeks. The whole yeah. eight weeks to film. Yeah, AKA eight weeks. Months. A lot of <laughs> fuck off. Eight weeks. A lot of blood. If uh, we're going off of what Christopher Allen Nelson, who did the makeups uh, as well on this movie. No, he didn't do the makeup design in this movie. That was K&B. He was actually the husband in the, the, we'll see him in volume two. Um, He'll get his grand moment. He said on set that this film used 450 gallons of fake blood. So, I don't know. I really don't have an opinion on that because I haven't sat down and rewatched Volume Two, so I really can't tell you how bloody that film is compared to this one. This is a bloody fucking movie. This this is bloody. I mean, it's so goddamn bloody that they had to trim—not trim—they had to cut the key fight scene to black and white because you had to get through the MPA, like I mentioned earlier. You know, because nothing gets past them. <clears throat> um. So yeah, when we get this uh, long shot of the bride getting ready, this is the long take. And uh, we see bride getting ready. Sophie Fatale goes down to the restroom, the same one that the bride's in, unbeknownst to her. This whole shot, you want to guess how long it took to do? How about this? Uh, how, not sure. Guess, guess how long, and then guess how many takes. I'll do that, because I have both numbers. Just just one guess for each. Just just one. I don't know, like a week? It took How a many week. takes? Alright. Uh it took no, six I don't know. hours. No, just this take six oh okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. This took six hours. And then it took seventeen takes to be exact. To get the long shot when she's going down. Yeah. 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 So except everyone had to be, you know, in in position. You know, timed precisely. It was, you know, a lot of, you know, correlate, core. Yeah, a lot of planning went into this sequence. So, um, the bride calls out Oren with uh, Sophie captive. And then she goes and proceeds to slice her fucking arm off. Fucking clean slice. Then kicks off this finale fight that involves a lot. So fucking much. It is the cream of the crop, like I mentioned. So bloody, so fun that they had to make it black and white. <laughs> and everywhere I else, like, Japan, it's no, in I color. Just, 
when the whole fight's starting, I like when they kick the guy who looks like Charlie Brown out. Like they're like calling yeah. him Charlie Brown and laughing at him, and they're like, and, uh, already she's like Charlie Brown, beat it. Like I just love that little detail. The guy who looks like Charlie Brown. <laughs> yeah, and this is the good place, or a good place to mention the uh, on set trainer. We mentioned it before in the Matrix movies. It's none other than Wu Ping Yin from uh, the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon films, the Matrix films, and this film. Uh, yeah, according to, like I said, the, the 450 gallons of blood. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of excellent cinematography during this sequence. Like, this was like the main sequence that won me over. I'm not going to lie. It's. Uh, awesome it's a fun fight to watch um, yeah i just a lot like happens how, like a lot happens i mean uma thurman you know you can there's obviously stunt doubles there's stuff you can do but uma was there for a lot of it like she had to do the wire work she had to learn how to handle a, a sword obviously and i mean it looks like she's there like yeah you could pause and probably nitpick stuff but what i'm watching um like this movie it looks like she's there. Like, I don't, it's not like face off where like, I'm like, Oh God, there's Nicholas cage and John Travolta's stunt double or something like that. Like it, it, it's very seamless in this movie. And it really looks like Uma's doing all that stuff. Uh, and it, the fight scenes are just great. Like the way she handles the sword, the way she like chops three of the guy, the crazy idiots down and then yeah. taps the blade. And then they all fall she slices a guy down the middle, like eight, eight and a yeah. half. And then like, one guy or one kid rather, I guess she like spanks with a sword and sends him home. Yeah. He's like the last uh guy left before like the the you know, Oranishi and then the head of the crazy eighty eights. Yeah, she like spanks him. I just like like they have that glass floor with the Zen garden underneath and it, it gives uh Tarantino a way to have the upper shot like you see through the glass, you see people running and all that. And it, it's just a good time. Like, even though people are dying, it's still like some funny stuff. Like, obviously, when she spanks the little kid at the end, or like uh, when three of the guys come down from the up the upper level, they're coming down the stairs, and just the way they walk down the stairs with their swords, are like dit, 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 down the stairs to yeah. get to her. It's just so funny. Like, it, it just has a, a little bit of a sense of humor to it as well even though it's like obviously brutal and she's like maiming all these people and slicing them and just oh my god I forgot to mention the fight that between her and Gogo Yubora like that that fight happens before any of this big crazy crazy 88 shit goes down like they, yeah. they they fight. She's got her her little spiked mace ball and chain that she's just a master with she wraps it around Uma uh, with the other end being stuck in this piece of wood and she's just strangling her to death and then Uma finds this this piece of broken piece of wood with three large exposed nails and it slams it first into her foot and you get that like I mentioned before that Italian giallo you get that um, homage with uh, the, the, the red blood just squirting up coming like kind of like just coming up like a like, in a giallo film and then takes the other part and slices it max smacks her in the head with it and kills her that way and again you get the blood coming down from the eyes that's a giallo thing uh and it's it's that like paint colored red too that's another thing to notice the, the color of it so getting that giallo homage in and uh yeah this um uh, yeah he's 
Got to get that Giallo in. And then we move on to the Crazy crazy 88 fight. And then uh, after that happens, now we're at Oren and the Bride, their duel in the restaurant's Japanese garden. Outside in the snow, beautiful, beautiful setting before we go in any further. Just out here in the snow, it's dark, it's peaceful, there's a fountain there, it's, it's just... Yeah, you just hear the bamboo little fountain going, like it's just so tranquil. And Which is funny because the, depth. the water waits, you see that front and center that you were just talking about, the water thing, and then it waits to fill in the bucket that uh, that in front of that's it pulls back. You feel the water fills the bucket, and once that occurs, that's when we start to see the blood trickle down Oren's feet after the scalping part happens. So that plays a, a kind of a fun role um, towards the end of this fight. So yeah, it, it it eventually ends with the bride getting the upper hand and slicing off the top of her head, and uh, yeah. Sliced off the top of her head. Lucy Liu, ag- a- eh. exit stage left. Nice to know you, Charlie, or rather Charlie's angel. Um, yeah, and I just love the line. Like she's like, "Oh, that really was Hattori Hanzo Steel." <laughs> like after she after she yeah, gets her yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. scalp cut off. when they first start the fight you get this like upbeat Spanish number it's different yeah. it go, it's it totally goes it's like you're taking music from one culture while you're showing a, a completely different one and I think there's something in that that's just fucking brilliant I'm definitely yeah. a fan I, I dug it I, I love the music that went with this it was so different and bizarre at first like for the first like six seconds I was like eh. And then I was like, yep, this shit rules. Give me more. <laughs> yeah, and I just think it's funny in this scene, too, because Oranishi, like, she had such, last, such an issue with uh, one of her uh, men questioning her heritage, but then now she's going to ridicule the bride for being a white girl that wants to play with swords. Uh, and then, obviously, the bride comes back and chops her head off or chops her scalp off. And then, you know, she kind of gives her respect after that point, like after she lands a few blows on her. So I just thought that was funny. Like uh, she hated it with uh, already. She didn't like it when someone brought up her heritage, but then she's going to make fun of the bride, even though obviously she's a great swords uh, swordsman because she just took out the whole crazy 88s on her own. Yep. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to mention was, and this might have been in the tidbits or whatever, but, you know, at the beginning, Oranishi says, I hope you saved your energy. 
Otherwise, you might not last for five yeah. minutes. And this whole scene takes I was about 459. To I was, yep. I was just about to say that. I'm glad you saw that. I'm, I'm, you did your homework too. Very good. Um, so, yeah, after this, uh, she tortures Sophie for information about Bill and the other deadly vipers. And then the bride leaves her alive. She, and the, the bride leaves her alive um, as a threat while going after, uh, you know, her second target, which is Vernita. Again, we're Tarantino, fucking with time. Again, Owen was the first name on the list. Now she's got to go kill Vernita, who we saw her kill in the opening. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, Bill finds Sophie and asks her if the bride knows that her daughter is still alive. And that is the film ending on a big cliffhanger. So the, the daughter's alive. Hoorah. See you in volume two. <laughs> so yeah, that's that. That is volume one. That is the first half of Kill Bill. We will return next week to do volume two. So in the meantime, let's get to trivia tidbits. Now remember that, because the more you know. All right, so obviously David Carradine was not the first choice to play Bill. In fact, there was a, like every big movie and every big role, there's always a list of people who were either thought about, considered, asked, declined, one way or another, for one reason or another, rather, didn't end up doing it. Uh, we got Kurt Russell, of course, Mickey Rourke, Jack Nicholson. Kevin Costner was close, but he was too busy doing open range. And uh, they were all considered for Bill. But then Warren Beatty was damn near right there. He had pen in hand, was about to sign down on the line. And he was like, you know what? Let me think about this. I don't quite get it. He didn't just, he, he just no matter how much Tarantino told him to try and think about it, he just he could not grasp the, I don't know, the, the the meaning for this character or whatever. He just didn't get the story, apparently. So he didn't sign. He backed out. Um, and that's where David Carradine comes in. So. Uh, can you imagine a Kill Bill with, like, Mickey Rourke as Bill? No, I think even though Carradine wasn't the first choice, I can't, like, again, with Uma Thurman, like, I can't imagine Bill... It's somebody other than Carradine, like just that voice in the first part and then just the ending scene in volume two. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure Warren Beatty would have been fine. I'm sure Mickey Rourke would have been OK, I guess. I don't know. I have a hard time imagining that, but it might have been cool either way. But I, I think Carradine was perfect for this role. I agree. I, I definitely agree. Um, So they filmed a lengthy fight sequence between Bill and Michael Jai White, but it was cut for time. I didn't have enough time to go back and look for myself on YouTube, but I did see a clip of it doing a documentary on this uh, making of for Kill Bill Volume 1. I'm not sure if it's in its entirety on YouTube or not. I would assume it is. Otherwise, I'm not sure where he got the clip from on this the video that I watched. But it exists. I, you know, spoiler alert, Michael J. White gets killed at the end of the fight. And uh, I saw that. I saw his death scene. And 
So yeah, it exists. I'm just not 100% sure whether or not the whole thing's available on YouTube. Probably is. Uh, but yeah, you can go check that out for yourself if you want. Or, or don't. It's up to you. Uh, like I mentioned before, the Bride's Yellow outfit was inspired by the outfit worn by Bruce Lee in his final film, Game of Death. Uh, the shot where the bride splits a baseball into is, uh, it was done by Uma's stunt double, Zoe Bell. I think this <laughs> is a good time to talk about Zoe Bell real quick. Zoe Bell, uh, again, stunt double for Uma Thurman in this movie. She's a very famous stunt double. She actually had a role in Tarantino's next film, Death Proof, as the crazy girl who goes up on the car while it's going in a high-speed chase, or not chase, but the high-speed driving and does all the stunts while Stuntman Mike all of a sudden pops up to attack them while she's on like the hood of the car. That's Zoe Bell. Um, Zoe's one of the people who's at the Haberdashery in, in The Hateful Eight who gets killed she's midway. She's in Django, too. She's in Django. Um, yeah. She, she, she's just in a lot of stuff. Um, she's back, you know, when this was filmed, it's pretty young. Um, she was malignant. Of, <laughs> malignant. Yeah, I was about to say she's. I was just about to say, dude, she does a lot of horror. She, she's got the fucking um uh, uh what's that? The mullet. mullet. It's not a mullet in that movie. She has the jail cell. Yeah, she sequence. has a mullet. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I knew that was Zoe. Okay. But yeah, I, I've always been a fan of Zoe Bell. She's definitely a cool chick. She's like the female equivalent to Jackie Chan. All the shit she can do. Well, she's a stunt woman. She's a bona fide stunt woman. So of course, now that she's taken that leap into you know acting, um, you know, and there's a f- couple of movies that she did like direct the video where she's like the main star, the main focus, and you know she's making an effort. She's trying. So I give it to her. Uh, but yeah, Zoe Bell, awesome. So during filming, actors and actresses often provided, I, I mentioned this, uh, in the last month's episode in Glorious Bastards, how everyone would say, hello, Sally, into the camera, uh, Sally is Sally Menke, the producer, uh, the editor, um, who tragically passed away, um, unexpectedly, like, I think her last film was... Inglorious Bastards, if I'm not mistaken. So I, found, I think it's dedicated to her. Um, I think you're right. I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm yeah. looking it up real quick, of course, because that's the kind of person I am. Hello, Sally. You passed away. Yeah, you passed away in September of 2010. Bleh. September 27th, 2010. She passed away. Um... She just collapsed during a hike. And, uh, what'd they say? Heat related. She went on a hike in 113 degree weather. And I guess she had heat stroke and it took her life, tragically. That's, that's sad. Um, the line, hello. I'm sorry, not hello. The line, my name is Buck. <laughs> and I, Hello, my name is Buck. No, the line, my name is Buck and I'm here to fuck was taken from the opening line in Toby Hooper's horror film Eaten Alive. Uh, Robert England's character says the name is Buck and I'm raring to fuck. 
you see fucking curly haired greasy Robert England and like greasy like dirty overalls like come on baby I'm raring the fuck no I'm just thinking of like I'm just thinking of like him as Freddy like I'm Freddy and I like spaghetti or some shit like now I'm just thinking of him like rhyming (laughs) I'm Freddy and I like spaghetti oh shit uh, okay, so the, uh, if you're, in case anyone's wondering what the body count is for this film, just this one, volume one, it's 95. Haven't even gone back and rewatched volume two. I know what the body count is for that. Do you? Uh, I mean, I could count it, but I know like it's not a whole lot because it's just like Bud and L and a few other people. I know it's not that much. It's Bill. three. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Those little ones. Um, Gogo Yabari. Not a real Japanese name. Gogo derives from Mak Go Go Go, a.k.a. Speed Racer, a Japanese anime that Quentin Tarantino liked when he was a kid. Yabari is the name of a small town in Hokkaido, northern Japan that is famous for melons and film. Tarantino's first visit to Japan was to showcase Reservoir Dogs at the Yubari International Fantastic Film Festival. Hence the homage. He did it with her name, Gogo Yubari. Uh, this and Volume 2 are the only t- uh, Tarantino films in which there is no mention of the N-word. Hmm. Which I didn't even notice watching this. Um... Not that I'm used to hearing it in a Tarantino movie. Uh, I just... uh, It makes sense. Because, yeah, uh, there's no need for it in this movie anywhere. Um, Tarantino chose June Kunimura to be boss Tanaka after seeing him scream in Ichi the Killer. Have you ever seen Ichi the Killer? No, I haven't. I remember seeing it on the shelf at Blockbuster back in the day. It's it's it. yeah it's good. I I checked that out about two years ago, and I was going through my, I I myself went through like a Japanese cinema phase and, and sat down and watched a bunch of stuff. Just not not even not even just Japanese, just you know just Asian cinema in general, Korean, Chinese, Japanese. Like I watched a lot of this. Uh, Old boy, um, P- Parasite just came out. That's actually what kicked it off for me after I came back from watching Parasite in the theaters. Actually, I went and saw that three times total in the theaters. Each time, I came back inspired. I just wanted to see more and more of like that Asian culture. So uh, I bought a bunch of films, and Ichi was def- was one of them that I watched. Um, especially the revenge ones. There was this one, and then the other big one was... Um, can't think of the name of it anyway it's it's, it's not important Ichi the killer is a fucked up film but it's one that i recommend it's it's got it's it's definitely art definitely got you know some some artistic choices were made for that movie and uh you know it's it's it it pushes the boundary like a lot of these films do and uh yeah i just just want to end my rant on the film with uh check it out Highly recommended. So, what else do I have? Uh, um, although the siren sound is heard before the bide goes on a rampage, uh, it's it's credited to Quincy Jones' theme for the television show series Ironside. It's more of an homage 
I'm sorry, it's, it's more of an homage to Shaw Brothers' Kung Fu classic Five Fingers of Death, a.k.a. King Boxer. The U.S. release of Five Fingers of Death used the siren from the Ironside theme whenever its protagonist went on a vengeful rampage. Speaking of, part of the movie was shot actually at the legendary Shaw Brothers studio in uh, Hong Kong. Tarantino has seen many movies made there, so he felt that it was important for him to, you know, work this there. And that's why we see the Shaw Brothers in the beginning of the film, um, even though it's not a real Shaw Brothers movie. It's it was filmed at Shaw Brothers Studio, and uh, he's just you know paying tribute to him, I guess, with that, <clears throat> or paying tribute to um, yeah them. So the cue. Uh, on the wall, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, on the wall at the House of Blue Leaves are the letters Q and U. And then that's an obvious reference to Q, Q, Quentin, and U, Uma, the creators of The Bride, which is what this is based on. And The Bride's not like an actual comic or a short story or something you can go out or seek. It was more of just an idea between the two of them that they just called an inspiration for this movie. Um, got two more trivias here. I got, I got two more. David Carradine is only heard in the film, never seen. Let me talk about that. I got, I got one more. The restaurant where the bride fights Erin is called The House of Blue Leaves. The House of Blue Leaves was actually a play written by John Guarry. That's where that uh, name stems from. All right, so let's go to box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out, we put more in. I want receipts. So Kill Bill Volume 1 was released on October 10th, 2003 from Merrimax Pictures. Opened up across 3,102 screens. Coming in at number one opening weekend with $22.2 million dollars. Second weekend, it dropped 43.7%, coming in at number two with $12.5 million, which is not a bad drop. People are like, 43% seems like a steep drop. It's not. The average drop, um, especially around this time, I would say is probably around 58 to 60%. Probably closer to 58 Maybe 56 58 was more reasonable. Uh, so 43 that's pretty good. Um, and that's kind of expected with Tarantino because, you know, second weekend, a lot of word of mouth when it, when it comes to a Tarantino movie. So that's where that comes from. The uh, total gross ended up being $180.9 million against a $30 million budget now. That $30 million budget is across two movies. So look at it this way, $15 million but you're also going to multiply it by two because of the whole marketing thing that I always tell you about. So yeah, uh, made money. Uh, and, and yeah, I guess like we both said, it was a Tarantino film. So uh, this is around the time Tarantino was really starting to branch out into the mainstream audience more. Um, granted, Pulp Fiction, people might argue that that was still kind of an indie darling, you know, when it came out. And uh, Jackie Brown, definitely one that I would consider an indie film. 
more than a mainstream film. Uh, but then Kill Bill comes along and turns a lot of eyes in its you know direction. So would you agree with that statement, Corey? That Kill Bill was kind of the you know grand. Yeah. Everyone was starting to come around to Tarantino. Yeah, I would because I mean I remember when Pulp Fiction came out. You know, it was just like, oh, it's this crazy new movie. It's, you know, the talk of the town, a bunch of awards. But it was really just like more movie guys talking about it. And same with Jackie Brown. You know, it was just people kind of already in the know. But I remember Kill Bill, like that was mainstream. That was everywhere. Like there was parodies of it. You know, like it was just all over the place. And, you know, yeah, that really was like first number one opening. Yeah, it was like the gestation into the mainstream because, like I said, that night I watched it. Like, I guarantee all those people weren't Tarantino fans, but they just saw Kill Bill, this cool martial arts movie. And, you know, who's this Quentin Tarantino guy? That's kind of what I remember. Yeah, right. All right. Let's go to Critics Corner, see what they had to say about the film. So the film's got a Rotten Tomato score of 85%. That is based on 238 reviews. The critical consensus says that Kill Bill is admittedly little more than a stylish revenge thriller, albeit one that benefits from a wildly inventive surfeit of style. It's got a meta score of 69 out of 100 based on 43 reviews a cinema score of B+. Roger Ebert, Eves gave it four stars and described, I'm sorry, yeah, four stars out of four, and described Tarantino as effortlessly and brilliantly in command of his technique. He wrote, the movie is not about anything at all except the skill and humor of its making. It's kind of brilliant. I kind of agree with that. Um, and I the more I think about it, the more it's coming back to me. I think when we had our big debate back on our car episode about whether or not this was a revenge film, I think I used the term scapegoat. And I'm starting to, that, that term is starting to come back to me right now. Because reading off what Ebes said, Roger Ebert, um, him saying that it's not about anything except the skill and the humor of its making and that's kind of a brilliant thing and I was kind of thinking about that myself watching this movie yesterday and I was kind of thinking that the film itself is more of a just a a collage of homages like we mentioned before the exploitation the Japanese cinema the um, whole revenge aspect the giallo the De Palma, suspense, all that stuff. Um, you know, the way he incorporates the Shaw Brothers logo in the opening and stuff like that. Um, one would argue that this is what this movie is nothing more than, not that that necessarily is a bad thing, because um, it's just a man who clearly has a love, admiration, and appreciation for these movies, this, this subgenre 
from this long lost time of film in the 70s that was just you know lost in the shuffle from so many other stuff that was going on back then and now it's getting the appreciation that it deserves I see nothing wrong with that um and uh maybe the whole revenge thing is a scapegoat to lure you in but the whole the true meaning behind it is like I'm saying now um and I'm not trying to to reignite an, an argument right now. Oh, I'm really not. So don't take it that way. I I really don't want you to like counter anything or have a response for what I'm saying right now. Um, so I'm not looking for that kind of conversation. I just kind of like want to, you know, get my kind of follow up on what Ebert said. Um, you know, I, and I kind of want to do that more often too with the critics' corner because sometimes I feel like we just kind of like just kind of snowplow through these categories and, and, and not give them, the, you know, the attention that they deserve somewhat. So I'm kind of doing this right now with, you know, kind of piggybacking off of what Ebert said. And, um, I, yeah, I, th- I think I, I made my point. <laughs> so um, I got a couple more review quotes. New York Times said, while being so rel- relentlessly exposed to a filmmaker's uh Idios, uh, what the fuck? Idiosyncratic turnovings can be tedious and off-putting. The undeniable passion that drives Kill Bill was fascinating, even strange to say it, endearing. Mr. Tarantino is an irrepressible show-off, recklessly flaunting his formal skills as a choreographer of high-concept violence, but he is also an unbashed cinephile, and the sincerity of his enthusiasm gives this messy, uneven spectacle an odd, feverish integrity. I like that. LA Times said, Blood-soaked Valentine to movies. It's apparent that Tarantino is striving for more than an off-the-track mash note or a pistache of golden oldies. It is, rather, his homage to movies shot in celluloid and wide, 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 wide screen. An ode to the time right before movies were radically uh, secularized. He also, she also, whoever this person is, was obviously a female, recognized Tarantino's technical talent, but thought the film's appeal was too limited to popular culture references, calling its story the least interesting part of the whole equation. See, there he goes again. Or not he, rather, there they go again. Or someone, doesn't matter who he or she is. It's just my point being another person going and saying that the film is something that it's not in your face that it's something that it's not like it's it's i don't know it's it's this person what i took from this last review from la times is that they found the actual revenge aspect the least interesting part because again they're more focused on what tarantino is playing homage to i'll say it again this is kind of like I called it a smorgasbord in the beginning of the podcast. Now I'm going to call it a collage of homages. Cause I kind of like I kind of like that term better. So fuck it, I'm going to ride with it. Um, and yeah. So let's move on to a category that we don't really do often. In fact, this is probably the third or f- maybe fourth time we've ever done this one. Oh, that is a category that we call. Music from the motion picture. Music from the motion picture. The music in this film was done by RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, RZA. 
Yeah, he's a big Amazing. fan of the martial arts movies. He is. I mean, they. I believe he was in the Man of the Iron Man. The the man. The man. The golden. What the hell was that? Martial arts. Man with the Iron Fist. He made that movie. I think. Man he the Iron that Fist. Movie, yes. Didn't he? Yeah, I, I think he did. He he. he did he? I think he did. He's in the movie. Pretty sure he that. did. I know he's in it. No, he's the main character, but I'm pretty sure he like wrote and directed it too. I'm looking it up. Um, he did. He wrote and directed it. Damn, you good. He wrote it. He he wrote it with uh, Eli Roth from his own story, and he directed it, and he's also in it. So yeah. Um. But uh, so yeah, RZA doing the soundtrack from the Wu Tang Clan. So, um, Tarantino was a fan, obviously, of uh, Wu-Tang, and he met RZA at the premiere of Iron Monkey, a martial arts film that Tarantino produced under Dimension Films and one of those things, and the two really clicked, and that's how RZA got involved with doing the music. Um, I like how he, this is Tarantino who I'm talking about at this moment, he incorporates, just like the movie, different genres of music. You got country music like and spaghetti western scores by Ennio Marconi. You've got uh, Bernard Herrmann's theme from you know, Twist and Nerve, like I mentioned before. You've got the Quincy Jones Ironside theme going on a few times. Can't leave out the five, six, seven, eights. They've got a bunch of songs. I walk like Jane Mansfield. I'm blue. The gong, gong, gong song. I'm sorry, the gong, gong song. And woohoo. And the connection to Lady Snowblood is further established by the use of the Flower of Carnage, which is the closing theme from the film. James Last, The Lonely Shepherd by Pan Flute, uh, Virtuoso, uh, Jorge Zamfir plays over the closing credits and then the theme from the green hornet is what we hear when they have the shot of the bride flying from or all around japan and a couple of those shots in tokyo japan uh that song plays the green hornet theme song um but going back to rizzo real quick uh there's just with this particular soundtrack here uh there's just a lot of things that went into it. So I have a quote that I got from 2003 that it's from Reza talking about the creative process. And he said it was more of a collaboration. He had an idea and a vision when he wrote the script. I think I was more of somebody that kept it in the guidelines of what he wanted. He was like, here go the eggs, the milk, the cake, the sugar, everything, and I'm going to stir it up. Put this in the oven, watch it, take it out in 45 minutes. Now, am I going to take it out in 45 minutes or am I going to sleep or am I going to fall asleep? I made sure I got it out and if I saw something wrong with it, I fixed it. So when he saw it, he was like, this is cake. There's one situation where you see crane and white lightning. That's part of the original score. So it's not really a song. A lot of that stuff that I, a lot of that stuff is what I used to keep the vibe going in between songs. Crane and White Lightning is a piece of music that Quentin wanted on the soundtrack, but was originally set for a Metallica track. There's only one piece of music that I didn't feel comfortable with when we were done. He, we lost the sample. I made one hip hop beat. I was like, I gotta throw one in there. Quentin loved this beat. 
We rocked with it, and it was one of the things that we first, one of the first things that we did. I could have gotten away with it. It was a sample, but so undetectable, so unnoticeable. I wanted to take a chance, but in the movie business, you can't take those kind of chances. I wouldn't risk anyone else. If it was my music, I'm sorry, if it was my movie, I would have taken a chance, but this is Karen, this was Quentin Tarantino's movie. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, and there's also, I mean, the, the opening song, it's just like this melancholic Nancy Sinatra song, Bang Bang, that we actually hear later on in the film, too. And, like Tarantino, it's, it's, it's just a, like, there's that word again, smorgasbord of just different things. There's, uh, you know, theme, whether it be a theme song from a popular 60s show or a up-to-date, you know, uh, you know, number from a, a hot band, five, six, seven, eights to an interlude, um, like Crane White Lightning or something, uh, oh, I'm sorry, You're My Wicked Life, you know, there's a bunch of dialogue or, or um, like a lot of soundtracks do as well, but what Rizzit does, um, just sounds smooth. That's the one word I had to describe that I wrote down in my notes for the soundtrack. The way it just moves. It's smooth. Um, anything you want to note about the music in the movie? Well, you know, spoiler alert. It's one of my pros for the movie. Uh, it's just so memorable because, like, the shot me down, bang, bang. Like, that's one of the most memorable opening credit songs. Oh, like, as soon it. as I hear that, I think of Kill Bill. And, yeah. you know, just uh, like you said, the melding of genres and making it into a coherent score, I think is fantastic because, you know, one scene you're getting Western vibes, another scene you're getting, you know, like a Yakuza Samurai vibe, another one you're getting like Grindhouse. Like, it's just so much and it's, it's all like, melded together it's, so it's, well. It's like Quentin Tarantino and Riza are concocting a stew. You know, and you got to have all these ingredients in this stew and just the right bit. And they do that so well. And this turns out just really fucking good. And that being said, I'm really excited. Just another reason why I'm excited to sit down and rewatch volume two. So, because I'm curious as to how that score is. So, we'll see. Um,. Before we move on to the next category, is there anything else about the music you want to talk about or ask or, or anything like that? No, that was pretty much it. I just, you know, it was so fitting to have RZA because he's just such a big fan right. of, you know, martial arts and kung fu. And then that's just what bonded him and Tarantino. So I think it was just such a good match for him to do the score for this movie. So that was, that was the only thing I wanted to add. All right. Well, then let's move on to pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. All right, pros. You go first. All right. So my first pro is it delivers on the martial arts. Uh, I remember going into this movie. I was just worried because Tarantino had never done like an action type movie like this. Like I was like, man, I really hope the martial arts and the action stuff is going to be good. Cause obviously at that point we knew we had a knack for storytelling 
and dialogue, you know, that's obviously a strong suit. Uh, but filming an action scene is a whole different ball of wax. So uh, I just wanted to shout it out here. The the end scene of the whole fight delivers. I mean, it's practical, you know, albeit the effects might be, you know, obviously done in a stylized way, but it just looks so awesome. Everything's so fluid. The choreography just flows so well. You know, I completely buy that Uma Thurman's doing all that stuff with the wire work and the flipping and the sword fighting. Uh, everything in that is just fantastic. Um, my next one is the strong supporting cast. I mean, you have Lucy Liu, which, um, you know, she's one of my favorite parts of the movie, Vivica A. Fox, Daryl Hannah, um, an awesome part by Sonny Chiva. Uh, you know, just the whole supporting cast. Like Julie Dreyfus. Like, yeah, Julie Dreyfus as, um, as Arunishi's, uh, you know, number one guy. Sophie Fatale. Or gal. Yep. Uh, which, by the way, she drives a badass car. She has the 300, Nissan 300Z. I love the old school 90s Z cars. So badass car she drove. Fatal did. Uh, but anyway, back on track. The whole supporting She's cast. like gorgeous. Every, yeah, the whole supporting cast is just... I can't imagine anybody else in those roles. Like Everybody is just casted perfectly. Everybody does their part perfectly. And you can tell everybody's just having a good time on the film. And I think that always translates very well to the final product. Uh, my third pro is one we just talked about. The music just stands out so much. Like, I remember, I didn't know the RZA did that. Like, back when I watched this, I liked the music, but I didn't realize it was RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. And I was just like, that just blew my mind when I figured that out later. Yeah, I didn't know he did the whole soundtrack. I knew he did, like, a, I knew he had a part in something that had something to do with the soundtrack, whether it had been like a sample or a beat or an interlude or what have you. But I didn't realize he did the whole thing, which, hey, man, fucking love it. But I was shocked by that. I had no idea that that was him th through and through. Yeah. And then my last pro is the anime sequence, the Oranishi origin. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of anime, but I do like me some anime. There's a couple shows that I do watch and a couple movies I've seen. And I just love the anime sequence. I think it was a good way to introduce the character. I think it was a good way to break up the movie and introduce just another part of the hodgepodge or the stew or whatever we want to call it of all the different genres in the film. So that's just always a sequence that stands out. I can literally almost remember that sequence frame by frame. And I just love that. All right, so for me, my pros, let's start off with the cinematography from Robert Richardson. It is one to remember. Tarantino's frequent homages that are, there's something something to appreciate. The excellent fighting choreography, the score from Riza, Riza and Sonny Chiba as well. Gotta, gotta shout out Sonny Chiba. And, uh... It's just an all-around fun movie. 95% of the time, that is. But other than that, it is a fun movie. Sans 5%. Um, so yeah, those are my pros. How about cons? Start with you. Uh, I only had one con, and it's not really a con because I just love this movie. Okay. But I wish it just had a little more Tarantino dialogue. You know, that's... That's what I come to a Tarantino movie for. And that might be what turns some people off because obviously this movie has it. You can tell it's a Tarantino movie, but it doesn't have 
those long scenes that you expect with that dial. I just wish it had a little bit more, I guess. I wish there was a little bit extra meat on the bone. I know he was going for like a very simple revenge movie and that's what it was. And I still love the movie either way, but I could have did with maybe a little bit more in this, in this one, you know, possibly. That was it. Yeah, that was it. That was the only thing. Honestly, everything else I think was fine for me. That's all right. All right, um, man, I wish I had just one. I got a few, actually. Um, not that bad. First, I can see how some people might feel that it lacks originality for those who don't appreciate the art of film. Um, so that's just a minor qualm. Uh, two, it's only a movie, so subsequently, um, you're you're not getting... It's, it's, I'm sorry, I'm just, I wrote that wrong. It's only half a movie, so subsequently you're only you're not getting a definitive ending, so that that's definitely a con because it doesn't follow a true you know beginning, beginning middle and structure. Um, and the other one I have is the crazy crazy 88's fight going the black and white, like okay. Put the for, put the pitchforks down before everyone wants to attack me. Spare me your tweets. Don't at me. All I'm saying is I would appreciate it if it was actually an artistic choice and not one to be done to get past the MPA without having to make any cuts in your final print. That that's that's my only argument. I'd appreciate it if it was a choice by Tarantino, you know, for artistic reasons, but it's not. He did it to just get through the MPA so nothing was cut in the States. And I don't know, it just kind of cheapens the scene just a little tiny smudge of a bit. That's all. Nothing major. It's another minor, minor, minor con. Um, So yeah, of the three, they're not really big cons to be taken seriously, so you can just ignore them if you want. Doesn't matter to me. Let's uh, move it on to, well, definitely parts that we didn't like. Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? I'll start. Because I want to get this off my chest. The buck stuff. With that fucking foul description and number of women that Sandler's Broad took a full advantage of. I just hate this fucking scene and certainly don't fucking need it for my entertainment person uh, entertainment purposes so you know um no thank you with this uh attempt rape shit from a guy who's normally like half a dwindling idiot in any movie he's in with tarantino and shit so um yeah not if you want to be taken seriously to me it's not the role to start with because uh, you're a scumbag, and this scene is foul, and buddy, you're foul. Uh, so yeah, that's my mulligan moment. If I were to change something, it would definitely be that shit. What say you, Corey? Mine is the exact same, uh, the buck rape thing. I don't necessarily have a problem if they would have just alluded to it. I just think the way it's handled, it's almost played up is like comedy because like then you see like the pussy wagon and she's got the glasses I, I don't know just watching it now back then i just laughed it off but now 
you know, 20 years There's later. One more thing you got to remember. It's 2003. I know. And I don't have like, I don't have a problem with rape being in a movie if it's a central part of the movie, but I feel like it was only added it's just gotta to be put in the price. Yeah. I, I feel like it was only put in just to put the bride through more shit because the more shit you can put somebody through in a revenge movie, the sweeter the revenge. But no, I, I was just saying real quick, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make it sound like, like you were an advocate for watching, you know, rape in movies or something. Like I just wanted to be like, you know, no, <laughs> but I'm saying a film can approach these sensitive, uh, you know, Absolutely, uh, subjects. Yeah, yeah, I, it, I know it what you mean. It can broach them, but it needs to do it with respect and for a reason. To me, there was no reason to have this, or if you were going to have it, maybe just brush over it really quick. I don't need a whole thing about her vagina being dry and lube, and I don't need. Yeah, I didn't need any of that. Rewatching it, uh, honestly, dude, watching it, was, it anymore, I'm going to fast forward it. It's it, just I don't even need to see it. I don't want to think about it. It was 2003. It was a gnarly, fucking nasty ass time. People were vile. People were misogynistic. It was just the way it was, and that was also the time when, like I mentioned before, pit my ride and shit like that. Stupid shit were huge. Fucking just, just corp companies and, and companies and, and 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 TV stations like MTV. They were the proprietor for all doing all this shit to begin with. Like. They just ate it all up, you know. They they love stupid shit like this, and I don't know. It was just <sighs> weird times. Two thousand three was a weird fucking era. Um. Anyway, moving on. I don't want to turn this into a rant. Um. Uh, let's see. My mo- we we went through that. Let's. Uh, okay. So let's enough about the bad. Let's talk about the good and move on to finger looking good. <laughs> finger looking good. <laughs> So for me, the House of Blue Leaves final fight against the Crazy 88s, it's a no-brainer. It's, it's my favorite moment of the film. It's just a badass fight. A lot of stuff going on. It's 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 from the editing to the choreography to the fact that Tarantino gives you like a solid 20 plus minutes to, to you know, be entertained with all this. Not to mention the way Uma pulls it all off. I know there's some stuff that requires Zoe Bell to, to slide in there, but, you know, Uma's definitely doing a lot of that stuff herself, and she trained vigorously for a long time to do it, too. Not to mention, did it right after having a baby. So, she's a badass bitch. <laughs> yep, and, uh, you know, mine's the same. Of course, it's going to be the uh, end fight scene at the Blue Leaves. Uh, it, it's just iconic scene. Honestly, I mean, I don't. It it's one of my favorite third act climaxes in any movie. I think it's one of like the grandest fight scenes I've ever seen. Just well done. I mean, it's just a huge scene and just so memorable. You know, you could show like just a little screenshot of that scene, and I think a lot of people would be able to pick it out from what movie it is. I mean, it's just so well done. Um, yeah, and obviously my favorite part of the movie. I've honestly rewatched the fight scene several times and not even watch the rest of the movie not saying the rest of the movie obviously it's all great right right but the fight scene is just so cool all right well let's move on to our mvps of the movie all right now you might think i'm a little biased 
but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... This is a no-brainer. Uma. Duh. I mean, did you pick anyone else other than Uma? No. I mean, it has to be Uma. She carries these films. I mean, if, if you don't feel sympathy for her and if you don't believe the journey she's going through, the movies fall apart. So she sells it so well. This obviously was written for her, partially written by her, and right. it just works so well. And, yeah, I mean, uh, to me, this is like the defining performance for her career. Like, I, it's a career high. For me for Uma Thurman yeah uh, well she was really really high in her career after Pulp Fiction to be to be fair uh, but this was another just resurgence that uh, I, I kind of wish uh, went or stayed longer but uh, hey, that's the business sometimes unfortunately I mean I'm glad she's still doing work now I think she's on a show at that Uber show on Showtime with uh Joseph Gordon-Levitt that I was saw a commercial for or whatever on social media last week or something like that. Um, I'll check it out eventually. But anyway, yeah, Uma, she's the queen of this movie, you know, and I'd imagine she's also going to win the second film, but that's another episode until we get to that one. Um, all right, so let's move on to our final thoughts. I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. Fuck it, Corey. You go first, man. So my rating for this one would be four out of five stars. Uh, I just love the film. You know, While it's not Tarantino's best work, it's not the tippity top, it, to me it's still um, upper echelon. Like, I enjoy this movie uh, so much. Like, I... You know, I've always held it in high regard. I've always liked it just because it's different. You know, he stepped out of his comfort zone. He wanted to prove he was a good director, not just this guy who could do some good or uh, excellent writing and was maybe behind the camera as well. He wanted to prove he could shoot an action scene. You know, in interviews, he said he believed the best directors are people or directors who can direct good action and right. action scenes. And he set out to prove it. And I think he did. I think he proved that he's not just a great writer. But he's a good director, too, and I, it came through in this movie. Uh, my other thought is just I love the molding of the genres. You know, back when I was watching this, obviously, I got some of the hints when I first watched it back in 2003. But watching it now that, you know, 20 years later that I've seen so many more movies, I've read so many more things, just the appreciation for all the different genres just stand out so much. And that's why I love Tarantino. Cause at the end of the day, he's a movie nerd, just like us. I mean, he obviously a generation before right. us, but still just a movie nerd. And I just appreciate it so much that this movie nerd who worked in a video store, just like <laughs> I did is now this huge writer and director. And, you know, I, I've always just appreciated uh, that sentiment. And I've always appreciated the fact that he stepped out of his comfort zone. Cause back then, I'm not saying his three movies before this were the same because they weren't. They were all different. You had the heist movie without the heist. You know, you had Pulp Fiction, which was just like the slice of life gangster type movie. And then Jackie Brown, like the nod to black exploitation slash con movie. But they're all in a similar setting. This one was like completely just kind of different. This big action, you know, grindhouse movie. So I just, it always stands out of like, I was just being, remember being so excited, such a long break. And yeah, this movie will always have a special place in my heart. 
All right, I'm going to give it four and a half stars. Uh, if I were to rate this as a separate film that stood on its own, like that's what I would give it. But only, you know, it's it's not. But we'll give our whole bloody affair ratings after our volume two ratings next episode. Um, so that's that. So as a standalone, four and a half. Like I said, I love so much about this movie. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Everything from Tarantino's direction to just all the different variations of just historical, cultural, cinema. I'm losing myself in the words because I'm just so, you know, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of stuff about this movie that just is just so good to me. And uh, I appreciate all of it. Like I said before, you know, we even really dove into everything before I even got that cookie in the milk. I was just like, guys, I fucking love this. I haven't seen this movie in like the last 18, 19 years. And so glad that I did. So glad that we're doing this because it's, it's just blew me away. I totally forgot how good this movie is. And I'm really excited. Even though I wasn't a fan 13, 13, 18, 19 years ago, I've just looking forward to watching volume two and seeing how I feel about it today. So coming soon. In fact, it'll be here this time next week. So at the end of the day, this episode is sponsored by Nihon Nubunka, Japanese culture. And when it's all said and done, this film definitely is going to get that film effect seal of approval, folks. That is the end of the show. One down, many more to follow. Check out our previous episodes, our ever-growing collection of previous episodes on our website at thefilmeffectpodcast.com and please follow us on the following social media platforms for future announcements and all up-to-the-minute news and updates. We are on Facebook and Instagram at the Film Effect Podcast. We're on Twitter at Film Effect Pod, aka the best way to catch up with us on social, on TikTok at Film Effect Podcast. And last but not least, you can send those emails, anything you need, questions, suggestions, or selections to the Film Effect Podcast at gmail.com. And we also appreciate any five star ratings and positive reviews. Go ahead, go ahead and send them over to Apple, Spotify, or at thefumeffectpodcast.com slash reviews. All that stuff helps us conquer the almighty algorithm by getting our names out there more and more. The merch store is also open and chock full of brand new designs, including the all new front and back design tee that features the podcast logo and all of our GTA inspired designs on the back. It's a good design, snug comfort. Pick yours up today. FilmEffectPodcast.com slash store. And finally, you can also get direct links to all the platforms mentioned in the episode in the website or, uh, yeah, which is FilmEffectPodcast.com. And that's all, folks. Another episode of the Film Effect Podcast has officially wrapped. Corey, as always, it's been a fucking great time having you on here. You know, I love your brother, Brendan. I love our banters. Always fucking have. Now, last week, guys, I had mentioned a couple of films that celebrate their 20th anniversaries this week in the form of Panic Room and Death to Smoochie. 
after we ended that recording, I went and reconfigured the schedule to kind of work them in. And I'm happy to announce that we're doing them both next month, along with the other titles that I mentioned last episode as well. Next week, but as I mentioned before, we are going to continue this party by doing Kill Bill Volume 2, which will act as April's Tarantino film. But the following week, that's a good one, the following week, gang, we're doing Jordan Peele's Us with two very special guests. First, my daughter, Madeline, from our previous show, Mad Dad Movie Review, is going to be joining us along with Carlo from the movie loot. Now this has been an episode. Love yeah, me some Carlo. Now this has been an episode that's been in the works since last year. Originally, it was going to be a part of the Halloween Horathon, but I ended up bumping it to January, and then it got bumped again to March, and now we're finally doing it in just a couple weeks. Cannot fucking wait. It's going to be a really good one, guys. Carlo's an amazing person, and I'm excited about the idea of Madeline joining us for an episode. Like, I just get excited thinking about it. Um, I know she's a big fan of films and that film in particular, and she's definitely looking forward to joining us. One final tidbit. Last May, we dubbed the entire month Bacaname and had a blast with that concept. It was great. Some good episodes came out of that. Check them out. But we have another event scheduled for this coming May. It's not going to be quite McConaughey oh, 2. In fact, it's not McConaughey 2. I thought you were going to say, say like Robert Downey Jr. or something. Come on. Yeah, I like that. I like that. No, no, no. This May, though, we're dubbing it May Bayhem. That's right. An entire month dedicated to Michael Bay madness. From Bad Boys to The Rock and Bad Boys 2 to Armageddon. It's going to be another fun theme month to do. But you know what else is happening in May, Corey? What's that? Episode 100. Oh, boy. It's crazy to think that this has been going on for nearly 100 episodes. Now, I've got a few ideas of what we're going to cover, but it'll be announced in the coming weeks. I haven't decided yet what it's going to be. You know, you know how you can find out before anyone else? By following us on social media. So do that, and you'll be the first to find out what episode we are covering for number 100. In the meantime, though, guys, till next week when we wrap up the whole bloody affair. It's been fun, but now it's done. Bye, guys. Take care now. Bye-bye. This concludes our broadcast day.